We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys, girls, comrades, compañeros, fifth columnists, we are back. It is the dulcet tones of one of your hosts, Michael Moynihan, alongside... Matt Welch, you know him. I don't sometimes known as Will Welch, by the way. We'll get to that in a minute. This <laughs> is but uh with Matt Welch, Camille Foster Who? is doing some sort of journalism apparently in uh the city of Chicago. Yeah. And I think by the time this comes out, he will be dead. Yeah. Um, having been gunned down in Chicago like everybody else. Did he get a bedazzled steering wheel? Do we Something know? Something like that. Yeah. There was a, there was, a, there was an alert. Did he post that on Twitter, by the way? I'm not sure. I told I, him I, to post it on Twitter. I hope not. Camille sent us a uh, screenshot of Citizen. For those of you who don't live in uh, crappy cities with lots of crime, there's an app called Citizen, and it alerts you to things that are happening around you that you don't want to know about. And uh, Camille sent us one from close to where he was in Chicago about a uh, triple homicide suspect, because it's Chicago. They're three times better than the rest of the country. And uh, was seen driving away with a bedazzled steering wheel. So uh, I don't know if Camille's gotten to the bottom of that. But uh, Matt, what are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? We got some stuff going on today. See, man. All right. So uh, later on, we're going to have a um, special guest. Special guest. You know who it is. because Yeah, because it's on the description. It's written yeah, in the yeah. description. But uh, the three-time uh, guest. Contentious every time in some different way. Some different way contentious. Yeah. Uh, ben yeah. Smith, ben who Smith. has a new book out. But he's going to be here in person. Be in person. So, so maybe he'll be more contentious in person. We'll That's see. what we're hoping. <laughs> like, seriously, first time he comes on, it's right after the Steele dossier. Yeah. That he publishes over yeah. And I think the first question was like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. And he was like, and he defended it. But and he's still defending it, by the way, in yeah. a piece for The Atlantic, um, which we'll talk to him about, I presume. Uh, but also a fun day because uh, your former employer, Vice News, uh, euthanized most people you know. Yes. Uh, some very good people too. Um, there were a few stragglers and um, I, guess, I guess we'll talk to Ben about that. Yeah, I want to hear his take on your problems. Yeah. And also like- Yeah. Well, because he was the, the editor-in-chief of, of BuzzFeed News, which um, was shuttered- what, Last week. Last week or two weeks ago, something like that. But now um, Drudge had a headline that said BuzzFeed News closes- and then right beneath it, it said Vice Next or Vice News Next. And like, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, kind of how it went down. And I had heard some rumblings internally. These things still get back to me. Uh, that this was going to come down. Um, no, we're actually good because uh, it's recording there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd heard some rumblings that these things were going to happen. And uh, they did. And um, it was funny because yesterday, it's true. In, within 10 minutes. There's no, no joke. I was in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and I walked by a guy, and I was like, oh, I know that guy. And it was the guy that uh, with the big, uh, silly hair, Anand uh, Garavitis, or whatever his name is. Didn't Garavitis. he steal your job? Yes. He, they, we were doing, a, <laughs> we were doing a, a, um, <laughs> a pilot, and then COVID happened, and everyone was like, oh, thank God we can get rid of Moynihan without telling him. And uh, they did a show with him, which lasted for about 16 minutes. Terrible. He's not good. Uh, I was not good. So I walked by him and then somebody grabbed me by the shoulder and it was an old producer that I'd worked with, lovely guy who um, had left a long time ago and we chatted. And then I left talking to him and I saw the second or third employee advice ever who was unceremoniously booted, I think, last year. Um, a very lovely man. And then I just happened to see another producer from, everyone's just walking around during wow. the day. Dazed. Yeah. Everyone's dazed. Blinking <laughs> yeah. in the sunshine. Yeah. And, uh, I said to 
the guy that I'd actually stopped and talked to, he said he was in a pool, um, like a betting pool oh, of when it would end for yeah. Vice News. And I said, bet on this week. <laughs> and he said, I had September. And I was like, I would change that bet. And uh, I want to point out that that pilot that you worked on. Yeah. What was the best part of the pilot, Michael? Be honest. Well, be you honest. Guys, you guys came on. Yeah. So oh, Michael was uh, putting together a pilot. It was going to be a weekly show or a daily show. What was it? A weekly show. Weekly. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty, pretty good. It was pretty good. Uh, yeah, and yeah. he had- uh, Someday I'll release a test tape that we did. It's not, a, it's not a, an actual pilot because they euthanized me when they realized, when they saw the test tape, what we were doing. They were like, oh my God, this is better than everything we have, but you can't say those things. So what happened was uh, Michael brought me and Camille in and yeah. it wasn't even like, oh, they're going to be part of the show. It was like they needed to like have- people sitting on a panel so they could like yeah, gauge yeah. the lights. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we just like went in and they're like, okay, just roll it, see what you come up with. It was good, yeah. And it was good. It was good. Yeah, it, was it was super good. good. And, and like it made it into the, uh, in an unplanned way, it made it into the, uh, into the pilot or like whatever test. Oh yeah, for doing. sure. Yeah. And there, you know, so we started um, where I was just doing to camera, um, talking about stories, <laughs> stories in the news. <laughs> and, Really making fun of everyone. We tried to be like ecumenical and make fun of everybody. Um, but that doesn't work in certain situations because as long as you make fun of certain people, it doesn't work. You can't do a balance. They don't care about balance. They just don't want you making fun of certain people. So doing that was, a, was I think, a problem. And do I know that for a fact? No, I don't. And you know why I don't? Because um, we were doing that. Uh, COVID started um, and the lockdown started. And uh, literally nobody ever talked to me again. That's not a joke. Yeah, I found out that the the hair guy uh, had a show with a bunch from of from Variety, from Variety, and, it, yeah. and like it was a lot of your. The it was a whole team. crew. Yeah, whole crew. <laughs> it was the whole crew. You find out in yeah. Variety. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really, uh, as the kids say, spilling the tea. But um, I there we had a group uh, WhatsApp uh, for the whole crew and all this stuff, and I and I wrote to the WhatsApp. And I was like, what's up, fucking assholes? Thanks, <laughs> thanks for fucking telling me. And then I blocked everybody. I was like, thanks for telling me you're working on this dumb show that's not going to last, which didn't last and was absolutely awful. And, um, and yeah, no one ever told me. The, the, the higher ups, um, two of whom that were instrumental in this, uh, both of whom have been since fired, I presume, they left. You know, when you, when you make enough money and you're high up, enough you get to say that like you're moving on to other things and starting new projects whereas if you're like a lowly editor or something like you just get fired yeah. and they say we laid you off so those people said that they um moved on to greener pastures but um but yeah they those people people i talk to all the time about the show um really high up people uh the, the two people i'm thinking of that i talk to all the time about this never spoke another word to me again i never spoke to them again and I was on staff, you know, until, you know, I guess December, end of December and uh, beginning of COVID. They never spoke to me again. It was unbelievable. That is awesome. And uh, I was told by, uh, well, I'll just say, I was just, my agent was like, you should reach out. And I said, F fuck no, I'm not fucking reaching out. They reach out to me. Yeah. No way. I'm not like going to go groveling back. No. And um, it was a stalemate. They didn't, they didn't know that they were involved in <laughs> Because they had just forgotten about me, and that was that. Paychecks but, are still, um, still paychecks are still coming, but you know, I was doing other stuff. I did another show. I did you know segments here and there. But yeah, it was an amazing, amazing thing, and it's an amazing thing to see today that uh, Vice News Tonight, which was like a, a husk of its former self, um, is now over, 
And I joked to a friend, I didn't know it was still going, but uh, apparently it was. And that is now uh, dead. It's an end of an era. And, uh, you know, it looks like the company is being sold for parts at this point. So We'll talk more about that with Ben as well. But there's two uh, semi-related points that I want to make about it. One is just uh, hearing about you learning in variety reminds me that yeah. both times, both the fake oh, time and the you. real time that the independence Twice. got ca- canceled. The learned, Daily News. The, Daily, the snooze was the first one to break it in July yeah. of 2014. They said that the independence was going to be canceled by Labor Day, which was not true. Um, in fact, the leak- It was canceled the day after Labor Day. <laughs> yeah. No, it was canceled in January of the next year. Um, so this is in the snooze and they, and they quoted an unnamed yes. executive- famously to me, uh, saying, uh, that, uh, they called it, uh, unwatchable. <laughs> That's great. And that my favorite part, obviously, uh, I'm sure Megan Kelly agrees. Uh, Matt Welch is a dud. <laughs> it said that in the news, yeah. That's a right. quote from an executive. And then that triggered an entire like internal, uh, uh, kerfluffle, uh, as some people would say, <laughs> some people would say, um, in within yeah. Fox's somebody who's not a dud. <laughs> who is who leaked it? Who said that? Yeah, and everyone was like doing the Spider Man pointing. Did you ever find out? Uh, um, I mean, you can never really. There's find a out. there's a theory, and I, I can't I can't really get into it. But but it uh, I think it led to at least one senior executive there resigning or being fired. Um, just the way that it was all handled. And, yeah, and uh, so it, it turned out to be wrong or premature. Um, and mm. I found out about that. That was really awesome. Uh, while I was in, at Freedom Fest, probably the last Freedom Fest I ever went to, yeah, uh, in Las Vegas. So that was a great day. But um, uh, when we actually got canceled, I think that was uh, in the wrap <laughs> uh, is where I yeah, uh, heard yeah, it yeah. heard it from. Uh, yeah. Like not just that we're canceled, but that there's gonna be a new show called Kennedy. I was like, oh, okay. Oh wow, yeah. That, that's- I love finding out. Um, and that was the thing about. Tucker Carlson, I think, said that he found out ten minutes before, like the news. Broke. I mean, that's it is the TV that's how way. They do it, and this it. this uh, is it. Hell, just been this week. Yeah, it's just this the longest week in in American. Yes, history. in the news history. We were going yeah. to, we were trying to tape on Monday, but I think everyone fell asleep. Yeah, Monday night to an emergency thing because we knew Camille was busy, but he was like, "Oh, let's do it." <sighs> yeah, he fell asleep, and I was in the car <laughs> driving. I was like, "I guess I'll call in." Um, but yeah, uh, we wanted to do it then, but yeah. So Monday was the night of the long knives, or the day of the long knives, with uh, Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon, mm-hmm. and also the not like in small potatoes, the in, head of NBC, NBC yeah, Universal. For who like had, been, her, ha- yes, in the NBC gal, I think. and it turned. And then the New York Post had a had a piece that she had been stooping some executive at another company. Did oh wow, that? that's I don't awesome. know if that's true. I don't want to defame her, but it was in the New York Post. Money, honey. New York Post has been defaming people. But the thing that you have to know about this business is that it is full of cowards. Like it is really full of cowards. Like nobody will ever say anything to your face. Yeah. In the way that you imagine, I don't know if it's true, but you imagine it is like on Wall Street. You know, like you're you're fired. You suck. You're losing us money. Get the fuck out of here. You go to your desk, and here's a box. Some like succession stuff, right? Yeah. From what like, I understand it, of the show. Yeah, I've never seen yourself. it, but 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 that is uh, what people imagine it is. But. Everybody is such a coward um, that no one wants, like in my uh, uh, example, nobody wanted to tell me, which I found amazing. And the thing about it is it makes them feel better in that very brief amount of time. Like, I don't have to confront this. Thank God. And it's like, but yes, I am going to find out, obviously. And I am going to make things difficult for you in a very long stretch of time. And it's not worth it it's much better to just tell me because if you don't, yeah, 
That's all I'm going to say. If you don't, it's 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 not a Monte Cristo show. It's 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 worse for you. It's much worse for you if you just don't tell me. But that's that happens to everybody. The you other hear this often, yeah. The other related uh, point that I want to make because there's now some vacancies out there on the uh, on the uh, cable uh, television uh, dial um, is that you know related to the very good cutting room floor uh, uh, mm-hmm. Matt and Camille panel on the Michael Moynihan Memorial um, mm-hmm. show, yeah. my show. Uh, and recent video that we just did and yeah. discussions about possible other kind of videos and, you know, um, holes in, in, in network programming, just back up the Brinks truck people. Um, put yeah. this, put this, you, th- what do you think is going to happen? I, I, I guarantee you, if you just like randomly. Well, they're not only cowards, they're also dumb. They're, they're all idiots. I mean, I, I have worked for more idiots than I can possibly imagine. Watch an hour. Of, you could possibly imagine. of any uh, cable. <laughs> I can imagine it. Cable news, sort of like chat format uh, uh, hour, or, or just or any format hour. Just watch an hour of it, um, and then ask yourself honestly. And this isn't really like to overflatter us, but also to overflatter us. Like, is it entertain? Did you did you laugh ever? No. Did you was any part of it fun? Kennedy's uh, fun every time. There's no question about that. There's a few. Uh, shows uh, that are like that. Um, Gottfeld was, is fun at eleven o'clock. Um, uh, it, it was it fun? It was it, it, did you learn something you didn't know? Including yeah. somebody with whom you disagree fundamentally. Did they bring a point that was surprising to you in any way? If the answer to all those questions are no, then what the hell is wrong with people? It's not hard to make yeah. make a place where people can disagree and kind of have fun and welcome people in. Well, I I used to say to them that if one third probably said one quarter of our audience for this show tuned in to a show that i was doing on tv and you guys being a part of it and the rest of it um it would probably be the top rated show network (laughs) so um just the simple math means that what would count for me as a failure would be a success for you because you guys are running this stuff into the ground the number of people that run things um you know, at the top of all of these organizations who don't know anything about media, anything about news, anything about what's entertaining and what's funny. And what and what's sucking people's eyeballs and like what's what what's yeah. going up with a bullet anywhere in media. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gail King and Charles Barkley is not going to work. I'm sorry, guys. And um, that, that that's nothing I, but love for Charles Barkley. For I, Charles. I, Barkley's amazing and hilarious and 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 interesting. But like I don't understand the pairing. I don't understand what they're trying to accomplish. It's just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. But there's not a science to it, but there's something close to that. It's just looking at the things that people like and understanding. Like That's why it was so mystifying to me. And when you realize that politics overwhelms people, is that Joe Rogan, it took how long for Spotify to reach out and offer him a huge deal when he had been racking up those numbers for years? And no one was like, we need our own Joe Rogan. We need to do something like that. They're afraid of angering the 22-year-olds in the building. They want to be, you know, go to all the, you know, Obama fundraiser type things. And that's just not a thing you do in media. And the 22-year-olds successfully mouth the company at least a little bit. They struck quite a few episodes away uh, out of the archives. They were, it was the subject, and we're forgetting all this now almost, but like in 2021, the White House spent a lot of concerted energy on the Joe Rogan Spotify problem. Yes. In addition to just sort of like broad-based COVID disinformation, we're going to do a whole of society like scrubbing of disinformation on COVID. That's killing people and whatnot. We could do the same thing with the past two administrations too. 
yeah. or like shitty COVID information. It's like, but why are you attacking Joe Rogan? But I, I find it, you know, that is the thing that gives the opening for kind of, I guess, right wingers would probably be the best way of describing the ones that are successful at it. Like, no, I this think... idiot. Well, I'm just thinking of like this idiot Stephen Crowder, who's just oh, okay. a totally useless person. Um, but people like him. If I was con- if I was running a network, I'd be like, I don't know, I don't want him because I think he's bad in every possible way. But it would make sense to offer him a deal because he he brings in big numbers. And so Ben Shapiro's operation does, and then because the guy's just a complete asshole, uh, it becomes an issue. And he like laughs at the deal. Crowd or not Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Laughs at the deal and exposes it. $50 million over four years. And it it exposes two things. One is that people think that Stephen Crowder is worth that. And I presume they've done their homework. I'm going to assume that no one's going to spend that kind of money unless they've done their homework. And the other end of that is that Ben Shapiro has $50 million to spend. And you're like, oh, wow. So while all you guys are navel gazing about shows that get 300,000 people, I mean, how many does Don Lemon get? 200,000, something yes. like that? You, you have people that are making millions and millions, getting huge audiences, and you just don't even pay attention to them. And it's like no one cares about, really, about Don Lemon. I mean, is there a proportionate amount of conversation to the amount of interest in America that we've seen to the Don Lemon story? We talk about it because we do a media podcast, and we make fun of these people a lot, and it's our business. But I saw it on the BBC. like. Some guy in like, you know, Norfolk is like, can't believe it. Fucking Don Lemon. He got fired. Don Lemon. It's like, everyone's like, who? Who's Don Lemon? Like, why is this a story? The guy has no viewers. And like I said on Megyn Kelly's show the other day that, you know, the kind of, here's the heterodox point. All the things that Don Lemon said that people are bringing up that are offensive, whether it was that Vivek interview or what he said about, um, you know, women past their prime. I don't think any of those are fireable offenses. You say stupid shit. You're on the TV a lot. Then that's great for ratings too. If you can come and have people fight this out. How many clicks did that Vivek interview get? A lot. I don't think that's what you should fire people for. You should fire people the fact that you get these controversies and nobody cares because you're boring and your show's boring. <laughs> that's why you should get fired. Uh, also, uh, I think I mean it. It's important to look at different ways in which um, that CNN and MSNBC have ended up mimicking where Fox has been yeah. almost from the beginning, which is that they are performing kind of fans yeah. fan service for political blocks. Yes. And um and that makes for good fan service for political blocks, yeah, but yeah. makes for really, really excruciating uh uh experience for the rest of us yes. who aren't part of those blocks. I and mean, even some of us might be part of those, but we don't like the sound of that type of of aggressive pandering yeah. of the eye roll. Um, you know, so many so many segments on uh, MSNBC and CNN could really just be headlined. Can you believe those Republicans? Yeah, like, really. Yeah, yeah. Like every one, yeah, you can yeah. you can do that. And I can't believe the Republicans either. I think that they're they're ridiculous. Uh, much or most of the time, I don't like the ideological trends of Republicans. I don't like yeah, the way they govern, either, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. You all know this, but like, do you want to add some value too, and like try to yeah. figure out what what people are thinking and. Who's the smart one and where? what's the direction of this and what's the import on actual human beings' lives, if sure. there is some? Yeah. Um, all of that is available. And it, it, you know, when you hire Don Lemon, that means you're not interested in that. Yeah. When you elevate him to any kind of level of importance, you, you just want him to badger people because he's doing fan service for, the, for that uh, block. 
that's boring television. And this is what is driving people not to the Steven Crowders of the world. It's demonstrably boring television, the numbers show. It's really bad. Um, uh, it drives people to wherever places are where it's not quite as predictable. And yeah. people like make fun of the sort of podcast bro demographic of which Joe Rogan is, is the avatar. And I'm sure people throw us in that category if they want to, or Barry Weiss or whatever, um, the kind of like, uh, you know, intellectual dark web or whatever it was called <laughs> at one point by Barry, Ridiculous, obviously, because yeah. she's a marketer. I have nothing else. Yeah. But um, uh, what is a th through line of that block, if that is a block at all, which is questionable, or even Bill Maher, is that it's actually curious about talking to all kinds of different people, and it doesn't they, they don't necessarily, although some are drifting in that direction, don't necessarily uh, tether themselves uh, or define themselves ideolo ideologically. They don't police the tent yeah. of, of the thing yeah. uh, constantly, and it makes I think um, as a consumer for much more interesting broadcast when you do that. Um, but there hasn't been a all that has been happening, and you've been pointing this out for ten years, Michael. That like, like, when are you going to notice that Joe, Joe Rogan has an audience? And yeah, you don't. it's crazy. Um, yeah. And uh, now, I mean, with the Substack universe, and all you have to do is look at their, you know, whenever they're trying to sell shares to people or whatever. But look at the the at the graph line on the number of subscriptions and the amount of revenue of people who participate in Substack. And, and it's great because all of up, that dude. in all of that is independent of the complete morons that run media companies and that program television that, that, you know, even in, in newspapers and magazines and the rest of it is that if you do an end run around them, it's a great filtration device because it used to be CNN, MS, Fox, ABC, NBC, CBS, et cetera, their programming. And you would choose what you liked out of that, but that was it. Now you have everything available to you and people just navigate themselves to these people that they like. And that's, and then, then you see what people actually are interested in. You don't know, there's no gatekeepers in that way. It's a boring old point, but one that we're actually seeing in sharp relief now more than ever, because people are actually getting money directly Do people, writers directly. Matt Taibbi, the hatred that he engenders, that is not because of what Matt Taibbi writes. It's not because of what he says. It's because he is considered a traitor to a political cause, number one. But more than that is because he's making a lot of money doing it. They fucking hate that. It's like, don't, you're not allowed to be doing this on your own. But you made a, a really interesting point. And I think that's one that's underappreciated. Talking about Republicans suck, right? And yes, I'm just like you. I mean, I can't, if I have, if someone, if a clip of Marjorie Taylor Greene comes up, I just start like puking in my mouth. It's just, it, what has happened to the Republican Party is a disgrace. What has happened to the people who are on the margins of the MAGA world, the smart people that have navigated towards MAGA, I think is also a disgrace and depressing and so many smart people that have seen go crazy. But you made a point about the material effect that this stuff has on people, which is not what cable news gives you anymore. You know who does do that is one of the oldest shows on television, 60 Minutes. If there's, yeah. you know, a train derailment and it's dumping toxic waste into a town, they'll go and be in somebody's living room with some people. That is stuff that you saw a lot more of on cable news. That stuff that, what, you know, that Vice did in its best moments of, you know, being in the field and doing stuff. It's not just field pieces, though. It's that. It's taking the policies that you're complaining about and seeing their practical applications and talking about that, saying, I can't believe what the Republicans did. Isn't that terrible? Yes. Well, is anyone on any of these networks, this is Fox, MS, CNN, everybody, is anyone ever trying to figure out why 
So many people listen to Joe Rogan. So many people vote for Donald Trump. So many blah, blah, blah. There's people that say it here and there on Fox. Oh, you know, he was servicing these people who felt like they've been left behind, blah, blah, blah. But that's just not enough. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there of, uh, which is worthy of digging into. But is that as interesting to them as just saying these people are all fascists? That's the kind of clickbait. But guess what? The problem is, and this is the thing that people don't recognize, I think, anymore, is that when you keep calling people those terrible names and the dark night of fascism is descending on us, and then it doesn't happen, and Joe Biden wins, and then, you know, you have all these smaller elections where abortion's on the ballot and Republicans getting creamed because how Americans feel about abortion, et cetera, and they're obviously showing some, you know, dissatisfaction the way the court went, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not fascism, by the way. This is just, you know, this is what you would expect in a country like this. But when you hear that all the time and you see these results, people just stop believing you. Why would I, I turn this thing, they've been telling me for six years that I'm probably going to end up in a gulag and my life is just a little more boring than it was six years ago and there's a bit of inflation, gas prices are higher, et cetera, normal human problems. But that doesn't actually get clicks. I mean, people call that clickbait because it was at one point, but I think people are so exhausted by it. The clickbait's not even working. Somebody calls every, some, everybody in the Republican Party or somebody in the Republican Party, Marjorie Taylor Greene, doesn't make a difference who it is, a fascist on MSNBC. It's not even going to get its own story on media these days. Yeah. No, I remember uh, I've had cause to think about the 2020 or 2019-2020 uh, Republican primary contest, of which mm -hmm. there actually was mm -hmm. one, and I covered it a lot. Joe Walsh, Bill Weld, and Mark Sanford yes. for a hot minute, um, and the Three Stooges, as, as Trump got, <laughs> called mm -hmm. them, which is funny. One of the aspects of of that way of thinking that has played out this week, and with media news, um, with Tucker Carlson in particular, mm -hmm. and we'll talk about Tucker with Ben Smith, I, I predict, uh, since the, over at Semaphore, where he works now as, uh, as co-founder, they've been doing some interesting reporting and speculation about Tucker's future but it's been fascinating to watch in a morbid way. Mm -hmm. um, the extent to which people have reacted to the news by – and by people, I mean like a lot of journalists uh, and a lot of people who are in politics one way or the other uh, by policing the adjectives of those who are describing Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. um, this got to the extent of – I think it was the American Prospect yes, had, had yes. a piece – uh, doing a double byline piece, yeah. Doing what Michael was just suggesting. Why yeah. are people yeah, yeah, watching it's, it's Tucker Carlson? Um, well, what, by the way, denouncing Tucker Carlson as being a shit. What is what is his like position of interest in the media and ideological firmament right now? Yeah. Why is he playing footsie with Elizabeth Warren and Robert Kennedy Jr.? Yes, of whom he said on his show last week, "I agree with most of what you say." Yeah, Tucker Carlson said that about. RFK, and maybe yeah. we'll talk a little bit more about RFK in a moment. Um, but uh, so the American Prospect runs this piece, which is denunciatory of Tucker Carlson, but yeah. also is trying to explore this and pointing out that he's doing a lot of economic populist stuff, which and bashing corporations and doing stuff that we normally associate traditionally with the left. And for doing this, they got absolutely savage because they didn't use the word fascist, racist, and white supremacist enough. I, by people that worked there? By people who didn't work there, um, you know, I think it was like uh, uh, Jamel Bowie and these th types like this who 
live entirely on the internet. I don't know if they ever eat meals or communicate with humans. It's just constantly tweeting and getting in these culture war and ideological battles, which I find incredibly tedious at this point. But the editor of The American Prospect essentially apologized for running a piece that had a slightly different opinion. Yeah. Everyone else had their, you know, Tucker Carlson, uh, who's been, you know, mainstreaming white supremacy, uh, has finally, uh, the the witch is dead, uh, long live the witch or whatever. Um, uh, long may the witch be dead. Uh, David Dayen, his name is, who's mm-hmm. a journalist I don't like. Um, I don't know him personally. I just don't like his work about California and elsewhere. But pro- economic progressive sure. guy. Um, like it's like I, you know, I wish I, I can't. What I can't do is turn back time. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, All and, the people that know, were harmed by this. Uh, you know, we're gonna <laughs> by reading. We're going to be running some other perspectives. You know, uh, sooner rather God. than thank later. God. Um, to talk about you're going to be this. okay, people. We're going to tell you exactly what you already know and want to hear. And this happened at Reason as well. We had uh, Robbie Suave, who's been on Tucker a, a lot over the years, um, wrote a piece that uh, was not laudatory at all mm-hmm. of of Tucker Carlson, but also didn't call him a bigot in the lead or anything like that. Yeah, uh, and he was malmout by Radley Balco, by Shikadalmi, people who used to work with him and used to work at Reason mm-hmm. uh, um, because you know just sort of like shaking their damn heads. Can you believe this? This is this is what's wrong with libertarians is that they you know play footsie or they look the other way and it's like you know reason publishes other people, uh, including other people who wrote about Tucker Carlson this week, mm-hmm. including Ilya Soman over the at the Volokh conspiracy, with a very kind of uh, strongly ringing, mostly denunciatory piece about Tucker Carlson, mm-hmm. how he's a symbol of what uh, has gone wrong with the pol- with politics and such. And we just have a ton of Tucker Carlson content, including stuff that I've written about his ridiculous uh, footsie playing and apology for Victor Orban, mm-hmm. who, as you pointed out, Michael, is one of, what, three foreign leaders that Tucker follows on, uh, yeah, on Twitter? Yeah, uh, it's uh, Bolsonaro, yeah. Uh, Victor Orban. I can't remember who the third one was. Rule of three. Uh, it might yeah. have been the guy in El Salvador. I think it was the guy in El Salvador. Could be, yeah. He was also accused of being a dictator, too. So. If you if you uh, watch and listen to Tucker's uh, little video that he made last night, uh, I think it's pretty yeah. interesting um, uh, because half of it is funny and smart uh, and kind of like, uh, you know, almost gracious um, of saying like, hey, you know, it's 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 good to be away from cable news as if, yeah. uh, you know, the 24 hours is such a long time or however long it's been. And then you begin to realize the cable just doesn't matter, mm-hmm. says the guy who's worked for every cable company. Every cable company. And has made yeah. $100 million probably, probably over the years yeah. uh, or close to it. Um, uh, but anyways, it was, but it was still fun, like funny and like, you know, he was, he was gracious towards people who have said nice things about him. And then the other half of it was conspiratorial claptrap of the kind that he's been trafficking in for very strongly for the last several years in his yeah. in his Trumpism without Trump uh, uh, yeah. kind of era, where you say these kind of airtight descriptions of like our totalist visions of what the media is doing, what yeah. they are trying to do. No, I I actually I I just actually opened up my notes, um, you know, app on my phone, also on my computer, and I just was remember remembering that I wrote something down about this, and I just a sentence here that when I if I were to open this in five years, it'd be like, I don't know what the fuck I was talking about, but it, it, I just wrote the veification of Tucker, Yeah, which is, you know, always, it's like, they're doing this, they are doing that. And that actually is the brain, the, the language of a conspiracy theorist. Yes. And it's like, if you say the deep state is one thing, which is also conspiracy theory, but, uh, they, 
they are doing this. They are saying, they don't want me to do this. They don't want you to do this. They don't allow you they to say. They don't allow you to say, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, and I know Tucker used to identify as a libertarian. He used to be a fellow at the Cato Institute, by the way. Um, for half a minute. But for half a minute. And would remember these arguments and obviously vehemently disagree with them now. But the they here are people, I'm presuming he's talking about Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch. Um, they are not people that give a shit of what the public thinks about them. That has been very clear since the beginning of Rupert's career. I mean, you can go through, you know, in Australia, you can go through when he bought the Times of London, there were strikes and people were just, you know, wildcat strikes against his his purchase of the of the paper, you know, Fox News, all the stuff, the New York Post. He doesn't give a shit if people hate him. He never would have had Tucker on in the first place when they called him white supremacists. He would take him, taking him off the air like, ooh. That is market forces. These are they're market for, they're looking at this stuff. I don't know what they're looking at, but maybe there's something that's going to come out that was, you know, obtained in the discovery process in the Dominion lawsuit that will cause the company and the shareholders and everybody involved a lot of headache down the road. They're making a calculation. This guy's making us a ton of money. But also advertisers have run away from him. There are boycotts against advertisers. The great thing for Tucker is that if he wants to do this on his own, you don't have to deal with any of this shit. So you don't, there's nothing, there's no one to they at that point for yourself. You can say that in general, the world is, they are doing this and they are the globalists, et cetera. But if he's talking about his own career, um, people have been very tolerant of him for a very long time. And there is clearly a business decision going on here. And they don't believe it's good for the business in the long run. It's not some conspiracy. It's not a globalist plot. I mean, the hilarious thing is RFK uh, Jr., this font of brilliance and, and you know, incredibly anti-establishment. I mean, the number of, of libertarians, particularly people who police what it is to be a libertarian. And or happen, used to. Or used to. And are now, like, loving uh, RFK, who's praised Hugo Chavez, who's, uh, you know, an economic progressive. He tweeted, um, and other people who are uh, libertarians... Uh, retweeted this and echoed this sentiment that the big pharma one, but what? Yeah. The thing you learn about the news business in this coverage is not to trust anybody because everyone's trying to be first. And so there were 10 stories that I read and they attributed to 10 different things. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It's like, well, which one it's like, it's like picking the door and one has a lion behind it. I'm like, which is the one that is real? And on Megyn Kelly's show, she's saying, you know, what do you think it is? And I said, I think it's a mugs game to try to determine not knowing anything beyond, you know, sort of instinct of what happened to Tucker Carlson and why he's not, you know, he doesn't have a show on, on, on Fox anymore because everyone is saying, well, this is it. That's it. This is it. I, I, in cases but, like this, I go to the murderer on the Orient Express uh, thing. Like everyone had a reason to plunge the knife. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Uh, but I mean, it's a Poirot episode, or yeah. or like Murdoch had seventeen reasons to do it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of which, and we'll probably talk about this with Ben Smith later on. But like, certainly one of them is that Tucker got big for his britches. He had yeah. his own kind of independent thing. He said in an interview, I think with Semaphore actually um, last year, that uh, basically I can't be fired. Um, I do what I want. Lachlan yeah. Murdoch is my, my super buddy, which he was probably exaggerating. Um, and so when you feel like you already have that kind of like, fuck you power, um, then you can become a problem, particularly if you are the center of what? Three lawsuits. I mean, yeah. he's the center of one of them. There's the Abby Grossman or Grossberg, Abby Gross Grossberg, yeah. um, uh, producer who worked for him lawsuit. 
which isn't nice. Um, but he's uh, he's material to some of the other lawsuits as yeah. well. So like it can they can all uh, combine forces. But it's the they. I I took his they in that um, and sort of like um, and in how he's been broadcasting for a while now to be the globalists, the elite. They yeah, all yeah, agreed yeah. to do yeah. this, these things. They all hate the truth, of course. You can even like see his face when he's yeah. when he's saying this. And uh, by the way, he recorded this video from his mansion in Boca Grande. Yeah. It's a very, very nice community on the on the west coast of Florida. Jesus <laughs> so, He's like, yeah. the iron law of the universe is that the truth always wins in the long run. That's, that's not, not true. That's not the iron that's law. That's not the iron the truth law. Truth doesn't at all. always win. And also, you're not always doing the truth, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and part of the reason why you are shortcutting away from it is the they, is yeah. that you are imagining that there is a conspiracy of people who are who are making sure that nobody hears the truth about what's really happening with you know, urban crime or whatever it, the, the level yeah, no, of immigration of this and that sure. and the other, as opposed to saying different people have different views yeah. and that is expressed through people. Uh, the monolithic version that he gives and so many people give and Lord knows Robert Kennedy Jr. gives all the time is Kennedy in his uh, thing, which he, uh, his uh, announcement speech, which came last week on April 19th said, and a lot of people who self-identify as libertarian cheered him on. Jeffrey Tucker said it was the best speech he's ever seen in his life. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he, he said, I'm quite sure it's the best speech I've mm -hmm. ever seen, just to make sure. Mm -hmm. um, he said, uh, well, after censoring me for 18 years, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm not going to be censored anymore. What? Yeah. You fucking wrote a book for Simon and Schuster in 2016 mm -hmm. about how your cousin who like murdered that gal <laughs> yeah, with a golf yeah. club was innocent. And he actually accused two yeah. uh, uh, kids uh, from lower, uh, from lower Manhattan um, who he never met. Uh, he accused them of going in. I think one guy's a black guy. The other guy's a mixed race to the extent that we acknowledge race in this podcast. Um, accused them of wanting to go into the community of Greenwich on Halloween of 1970, whatever, and do a caveman rape on a blonde girl. Yeah, that's that's wilding taken to a. This is the, the this is what censorship that. looks like. You yeah. were you censored by Rolling Stone when you wrote uh, an, an article in 2006. I think that's in the 18 year yeah. band, if I'm math is correct. Is, yeah, um, saying uh, was the election of 2004 stolen in yeah. the headline, and the and the subhead is was basically hell yes it was, and I have the proof. Mm -hmm. um, he has he's a fucking Kennedy. You haven't been censored. There isn't a they that can make you shut up. And by the way, you can use all of the tools of social media, of YouTube and whatever, and talk whenever you want. People yes. will listen to you because you're a goddamn candidate. This, this idea of censorship does not fly anymore. You can be kept off of mainstream news outlets. It's not censorship. You can point that out. You have plenty of megaphones, plenty of avenues to point this out. I had to look this up because he wrote a book. Uh, that came out in 2021 called The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma in the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. I haven't read this book. I can Im only imagine what it contains. There are very few books that have this number, but on Amazon, it has 23,000 ratings, meaning that he has made millions of dollars off this book. This book has been an unbelievable success. That ki that, those kinds of numbers are fucking enormous. If you have access, and I know there's some people here in publishing, to BookScan, I don't, I used to have access, but it's expensive. And First of all, give us. Uh, and, yeah, give us access. And, and, and you know who we're talking about. Yeah. 
person yes. who works in the well, public industry. Well, we know a few that are listening to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of them want to come forward, you cowards, because yeah. um, <laughs> you'd be censored. But uh, uh, it says in the description, uh, number one, Amazon, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Publishers Weekly, national bestseller. Censored. Underneath it, over 1 million copies sold despite censorship. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Yes, it does. Oh, no. Uh, over 1 million copies sold despite censorship, boycotts from bookstores and libraries, and hit pieces against the author. Well, you're winning. So it's not, I mean, I, I don't know. If people are trying to censor Robert Kennedy, it ain't working. If that's, I don't believe that to be true, though. But I tell you what, it's not censorship if you don't want somebody who has expressed bizarro, fringe views about a number of things over time. So much so, by the way, I sent you something I wrote for Reason in 2008 Eight. or nine. And there was uh, speculation, you go back and find this, there was a piece in Politico about it, that um, he was going to be tapped by Obama to run the EPA. Yeah. And there was like a Politico piece, wait, is he too controversial? It's like the fact that he's even being considered, Alex Jones is not going to be considered to be like, you know, the head of uh, the FEC or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, this. you're a man of the mainstream. You're a Kennedy. You're married to the woman from Curb Your Enthusiasm. You're not somebody who's like in a shack with a tinfoil hat on, you know, typing on his, on his, you know, 28K bod modem trying to upload things to newsletters. I mean, please, you have a big, but it does allow people and some people who are kind of adjacent to us, which I'm always uncomfortable with, who say this kind of stuff that like unbelievable, the amount of censorship that he has to deal with and the truths that he is telling. So. If you're going to praise somebody, I mean, do you do the same thing for Bernie Sanders? Will they do the same thing for Bernie Sanders? Some of them, I guess, will, right? Who, you know, he's talking about the corporations. They hate the corporations. They're populist now, too. But I think they're smart enough to know that Bernie Sanders' economic ideas are something that they want to keep away from. Robert Kennedy has very similar economic ideas. This is, this is not something that, that these people, this is not a person these people should be posing up to. I am developing a horseshoe theory of American crack pottery, mm -hmm. uh, which is to say, and, and I can understand a lot of people who were upset when, when Tucker left um, and who pointed out, and you see, this is obviously a Glenn Greenwald thing. At some point, I saw a Glenn Green, if I'm going to get this right, a Glenn Greenwald tweet praising um, uh, Tucker Carlson in the wake of his firing that was retweeted by the Libertarian Party, National Party. And uh, I just want to say congratulations to America for yeah. that. <laughs> uh, but the thing that Greenwald and Carlson and the modern management, the failing modern management of the Libertarian Party, we'll see how long that continues to last, mm -hmm. um, have in common right now is the they. Yeah. They really, they don't want you to know this. They are censoring you. Um, they are pushing the vaccine in this way. And it doesn't mean that they're not directionally uh, uh, have a, plenty of, of important points. It's that there's no room, there's no air in their universe for actually that's just what somebody believes legitimately. It's not because they're yeah. part, they've decided to join a conspiracy. It's not because they're afraid. Yes. Um, it's not whatever. Um, you know, at some point, Robert uh, Kennedy said uh, in, I believe it was in his uh, uh, Tucker Carlson interview um, that uh, uh, Anderson Cooper is an employee of Pfizer, just says that. Like Anderson Cooper, uh, maybe he's what well, he comes from a rich family, certainly. He's Gloria Vanderbilt's son. Uh, so, you know, it, it could be, <laughs> but you know what? He's not an employee of Pfizer. Yeah. He's not. That's wild. Kennedy man. said that tech companies have been granted a mono their monopolies by 
the CIA, and InQtel. What's InQtel? No fucking idea. But is it's that a new rad. one? Wow, that's um, it's a new new brand yeah. of Michael. I learned this. I bet that's the organization that killed Martha Moxley. I, <laughs> <laughs> he has two long published theories about who killed. They're diametrically opposed about who killed. One was in a 2003 Atlantic article where he pinned it on one dude. And then in 2016, in his book Framed, he pinned it on the black guy. So the one, the one that was published by Simon and Schuster, the other one was published by The Atlantic, the man who's being desperately censored, censored by everybody uh, constantly. Um, uh, no, he's like uh, in QTEL uh, did this because, it, and they did that to uh, reward them for um, for their loyalty to the CIA. I found out about this in an 18,000 word oh my god interview and profile in Tablet. Tablet. Wait. But, but Robert Kennedy published something? Uh, no, they published. Uh, David Samuels wrote a, a piece oh, yes, yes, in yes. Tablet. I haven't read this it yet. ball caressing uh, interview with him. This, I liked. I don't know David personally, but I like his writing. Uh, he. Uh, I'm interested in. Um, for instance, Robert Kennedy has said in the past, uh, and this has caused uh, some amount of controversy, um, uh, describing um, the vaccine schedule for children. This mm-hmm. is prior to COVID, mind you. This is 2015. Um, comparing it to a Holocaust, um, and that it's very similar to totalitarian East German and you know Ceausescu and all these different things. And they talk about it in the interview. And the David Samuel's question is like, uh, "Yeah, that's just you know that's just journalists looking for a gotcha mm-hmm. in tablet." He's saying this about calling vaccines a holocaust <laughs> what are we doing people and is that censorship it's not censorship you're letting the guy talk i go read it he says in this uh, interview that sir han Sirhan didn't kill his dad yeah he he he, he met with sir han Sirhan. yeah um and sir han Sirhan, while he met him this is hilarious i guess uh, except not to the other members of the kennedy family who hate him for it um uh sir han Sirhan apologized to robert kennedy's son for killing his dad and he still thinks he didn't kill his dad. Wait, did he actually apologize? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. He's like, uh, you know, he's, he's shown remorse, and uh, but also he didn't do it. That's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, That's like the conspiracy theorist when bin Laden's like, do you see what I fucking did? Yeah. I blew up those towers. You're like, you didn't do it. He's like, no, seriously, I did. Like, why are you trying to take credit away from me? <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. That's, is- that, I didn't know that uh, Sirhan Sirhan was like, yeah, I, I killed your dad. And uh, he was like, uh, no, you didn't. <laughs> so, no, you didn't. <laughs> uh, no, but to give these guys strange new respect. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I, I saw Scott Horton from antiwar.com said, uh, you know, he's a Democrat, so he'll be bad on most issues, but he's good. He's good on the good ones, good on the important issues. Mm-hmm. No, well, one of the important issues is, I don't know, let's call it free speech. Mm-hmm. He has over and over again. I showed you a clip from yeah, nine years I was ago, surprised earlier today. that that hasn't made it around. But well, it's yeah. going to make it around by the time this comes out. I will have written a piece and reason about this. But in 2014, he said that the Koch brothers should be put in uh, in the uh, the Hague next to the war criminals. Um, uh, he also said that he wished that there was a law that you could prosecute. Uh, politicians who agree with the Koch brothers about mm-hmm. global warming um, to arrest them, but sadly there isn't a law. And then afterwards, and this made the rounds at the time of like, my God, he's just saying lock up uh, climate deniers. He uh, clarified his position. It's like, oh, obviously that's just a right wing smear. And he did this on a, a piece that was called um, uh, uh, Jailing uh, Climate Deniers. Mm-hmm. That was the headline of the piece. Yeah, it's pretty subtle. And in it, he said, <laughs> no, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, go after individuals. It's just that any uh, corporation or or entity sure. that takes money from Exxon Mobil or the Koch brothers or the American Petroleum Institute 
to greenwash because they are, you know, scab, scabrous human beings, whatever, um, incredibly Wait, mercenaries. by the way, and this is the, the man whose brother, uh, Joe, was taking millions of barrels of oil from the Venezuelans in Sitco uh, to give it to poor people, apparently, um, supposedly, and uh, had praised uh, Chavez. And both of them had, had said very nice things about a hideous uh, dictator who destroyed his country. And I guess that's that's a different oil company. Sitco's uh, fine. And he was also uh, in favor of nationalizing uh, uh, Hugo's, uh, Chavez's nationalizing oil companies. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, he says all this and uh, that, so instead of, of jailing individuals, um, we just, he just wants the government to have power. Yeah. And again, he's being praised right now by some uh, nationalist conservatives and libertarians as someone who's, you know, reviving the left's dormant civil libertarian tradition. He's saying, we, what we need to do is have state attorneys general uh, show enough like virility to go out and annul the corporate charters of oil companies and also of uh, think tanks, including the Cato Institute, <laughs> the American Enterprise yeah. Institute, uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Council. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, he listed them all out. Like he gave the kill list of what needs to be uh, annulled and also like just to remove their authority to he operate. He warbled his way through all of these things. He, he, wrote, he, he wrote it down. He wrote it down. Yeah, it's a but he, there was no, there were no, um, there were no other sort of lefty think tanks on there that have been taking money from Walmart and things like that. Uh, not in this case. Um, uh, I'm going to say that now because I think he knows that he's uh, gained a pretty big following on the right. Oh, he's presenting himself as a uniter. Yeah. This person who- of has, lunatics. Who said that he wants <laughs> Don Blankenship, who, Frank, the Cole uh, exec, who is this, frankly, I interview, a crook. I interviewed Don Blankenship, um, yeah. It was one of my favorite interviews. He said that uh, Blankenship uh, should uh, spend an eternity in jail. He was, I, I interviewed him, I think, his first day out of jail. I think this was the first person I talked to, was he talked to was me. And I met him in a hotel in Las Vegas, and uh, he was a he was a you guys, very similar to the they. It's on the other side when he's talking about the medium, mm -hmm. and he's like, you know what you guys do? And I'm like, dude, I've never written about your fucking shitty company and your shitty case and your mind collapse. And it's like, you know, and I was like generous to him in the sense that I was like, you know, give me give me your your argument, I'm, I'll present it, and I'll I'll go back and forth with you on it. But yeah, he's, he was in jail. He was already jailed. And so I guess he thinks he should have been jailed longer. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, yeah, this is not- He's not going to win West Virginia. This is well, not- Actually, a lot of people in West Virginia hate Tom Blankenship, so that's, maybe he will. Uh, he, isn't he the one who came up with uh, Cocaine Mitch? He that's, came up with yeah, Cocaine Mitch, which, yeah. I mean- Yeah, and he talks very slow, like Mitch. Yeah. Eternal jail for the guy who came up with co Cocaine Mitch? Uh, it's kind of funny, though. You gotta, <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. Like, you gotta yeah. give it, like, oh, yeah, you're like a reduction for good behavior. Yeah, yeah, you're questioning eternal jail for somebody as hilarious as saying Cocaine Mitch. That's uh, pretty good. Yeah. Um, no, the, the strange new respect- for an absolutely batshit authoritarian yes. uh, lefty who loves Hugo Chavez and who's a election denier uh, ah, yes. 2004. Yeah. Um, seriously, he's an election yeah, yeah, denier. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, that's what the term we use. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's what he's doing. And, and notice that all of what we've just talked about, we're not even talking about what he has said over the years about vaccines. Yeah. Besides yeah. the Holocaust comment, which seems a little bit uh, hyperbolic, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and all these people are like, yeah, the media is going to try to slime him as an anti-vaxxer. I mean, that's, he's he happy to literally has a large nonprofit that tries to get deschedules schedules of childhood vaccines. That's what they do. Yeah. Um, so what are we, 
Yeah, and it's it, it's like I don't think he would shy away from that characterization. Of no, it's just that the sliming of, that just shows it's the enemy of my enemy uh, uh, theory, in which again the horseshoe theory of of craptasticness of crack pottery in the country. It, they love the enemy of my enemy theory. Like, think about it for a second, because some of the same people you reference, like people who used to police the term libertarian. Yeah. Um, they hate you, um, just because yeah. you're an asshole, but also yes. because they're correct about something. They perceive <laughs> you as uh, having like like being a neocon or something like that. Sure. And they love Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Let's spot the flaw in that logic. Mm-hmm. Um, Tucker Carlson, go look at what he he said and wrote and broadcasted about Saddam Hussein, the Iraq war, uh, and people who oppose it uh, in 2002, three, four, five. I think he turned around 2004 or five. He, I think uh, that he was, uh, uh, he, I think said to you in a Reason TV interview that Ron Paul kind of like yeah, t- yeah, turned yeah, him a little was, bit. He did turn. And so- He wrote that piece about Ron, Ron Paul for, um, for the New Republic, which was pretty good. He wrote a piece about Ron Paul. Oh, right. Yeah, it was kind of goofing on Ron Paul's supporters, but also like giving Ron Paul a lot of credit. I mean, you saw him going in that direction, but that could have been perceived as the libertarian direction at the time. Yeah, and that's why he's you know I'm a fellow at Cato and I'm a libertarian, self-identifying as one. But then again, so many people in that universe also became Buchananites, and so that shift is all of them together. When people say. Tucker Carlson is doing a, an act. I don't think he's acting at all. I've seen this over time and you see these things. And I don't think like he was on Fox like ages ago and, you know, filling in. I mean, Camille has a, there's an episode where he's like, you know, with uh, on Fox and Friends, like the Saturday morning one, mm-hmm. like, which is like the one that they put the, you know, nobody's on basically. Shoot. Scott, uh, your Scott Brown used to be on that show. Yeah, yeah, on. exactly. Scott Brown. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, um, you know, Camille was on and, and he said something about, about race pride and, and, uh, and Tucker was like, that is really amazing that I want more of this incredible. And, uh, but so he was like a nobody kind of player. And you can say the Trump thing. Well, the Trump thing that did a, a lot of weird things to a lot of different people. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that he was just, you know, playing a character to make money. I don't think that Tucker Carlson could have done that a million times over the years. And I don't think he did that. I actually don't. I, and the I, reason I don't is just because he seems to have been trending with that Ron Paul thing. He, it, it was not the kind of popular position to take in 2006. I mean, if he's going to make money, he would have gone and, and been an Obama. But he, uh, he actually gave an interview like just a, a, a month. Or I mean, two, I could be wrong about this. It's just uh, a month or two ago talking about like his big lessons and it was all about they. It's like what I really realized now that I saw that the media. It was like some young wants kids you, podcast. Yeah, 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 wants you to do this, and it is, it is, pretty like conspiratorial crack pottery. I think that in he's, that he's he's smart by the way of of cutting himself off there because I watched an interview and he's like, and I was part of it. I'm part of it. I'm guilty of this stuff too, which is what people love in a conspiracy theory is somebody from the inside who says, I'm going to expose what I saw. I used to work for the CIA and I'm here to tell you. Yeah. It's, it's the AG kind of thing. The Philip AG thing. Like I'm from the inside and I'll tell you how dark and dirty. And that's like, you know, um, the guy that uh, Scott Ritter is a good version of that. I was a weapons inspector and a pedophile. Which one do you like better? (laughs) I'm like, I don't know. Both are pretty funny. Um, no, I'm joking. Come on, come on. Someone will probably take that out of context and be like, look at the, they don't do that enough. No, they don't do that enough. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be a a lot of material out there. Yeah. Anyway, um, Ben Smith's going to come in now. So why don't we, uh, 
cut this off and say, um, I like these kinds of episodes because it's just a lot of stuff welling up inside the two of us and you get to just kind of vomit them out. So sorry that there's not a real narrative in this one, but, but, yeah, uh, we're talking, we're talking about media stuff, and media we'll... stuff, Tucker, the rest of it. Cause we actually, you know, it's funny. I just realized that because of, uh, Camille's schedule and, and his other job, um, I don't have another job. This is my job. Uh, we haven't actually been on the air talking about Tucker, Lemon, all this stuff. We have done Megan Kelly show. It happened literally three days ago. Yes. Is that true? Yeah. But like I, I did uh, other podcasts about it. Um, yeah. We haven't been together talking about it. So yeah, yeah, we have some some pent up business. Um, yeah. Some pent up business. All right. Well, let's get to the business of the past and um, the past in the sense of the media and where it changed and uh, big websites like BuzzFeed. Huffington Post and Gawker, which is the subject of Ben Smith's new book, Traffic. And I'll read the evocative subtitle when he sits down with us, um, which you should uh, check out. It's a breezy read. And uh, Ben's going to talk to us about all of his wild ideas and theories. And hopefully he'll be mad at us like he was the last two times. All right. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. All right. Well, I already, done, I already did the introduction. So I'll do another introduction because right now we are, in fact, sitting down with Ben Smith, the Ben Smith yeah. of Semaphore, previously of BuzzFeed News, previously of the New York Sun. Everybody remember that? And uh, a, a fine in his book, Traffic, which we're going to talk about, which the first person thanked was Seth Lipsky, who is an amazing person. And I'm giving you all your journalists out there an idea. Nobody has written a great profile on Seth Lipsky because he's an amazing character. Like a character, not about his politics, not about anything, but a very, very interesting guy. So, uh, Ben, thanks for joining us in person. You're here it's in person. It's so nice to be here in person, drinking your coffee, eating your cake. That uh, You're going to regret that in about five minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we're not going to ambush you. I don't know what that would ambush you. I'm, but, I'm really worried about the uh, phrase that we learned this morning, which was Ben Smithing, which I don't think I didn't know. Thing. I didn't oh, think that was a thing. Yeah, this, that was in a New York Times incredible. It was a... Um, there was a period where the Breitbart people developed a conspiracy theory that the reason that we were scooping them on stories was not because we were sort of without fear or favor reporting things that were sometimes helpful to conservatives, mm -hmm. but because we were part of like a very elaborate conspiracy to write the stories before they did so that they would lack the sort of special Breitbart charge wow, that's specific. when they made it out into public. <laughs> what would be an example of the type of story if that even makes sense? They were going around, as I recall, in twenty. 11 and 2012, and really right around the time Andrew died, and they were probably kind of crazy with grief in some ways, saying that they had this story that was going to knock out Barack yeah. Obama. And Andrew Kaczynski, who worked for me, they, they gave enough clues to it that Andrew Kaczynski, who worked for me, realized what it was. It was he does a, the K file at CNN, and obviously he's always ferreting out yeah, information. And yeah, so, and he realized what it was. It was a video of, of Obama saying kind of interesting and particularly of the mo sort of positioned himself of who he was at Harvard Law School in a protest at Harvard saying some words that weren't massively interesting, but kind of interesting. And we published the video and, and scooped them. And they really believed it was like a conspiracy and a thing called Ben Smithing that we had done. That they amazing. gave you the video to kind of take the sting yes. out of what yeah, they're... Sort of, I guess yeah. that's the idea. So that front running the story or something, but we really, we just beat them. Yes. And in your book, by the way, um, Breitbart figures in this book and an often forgotten thing, Matt uh, knew Andrew quite well. I knew him a little bit uh, from DC when I was there. But uh, the often forgotten thing that he was the first employee at Huffington Post is that yeah is that right? He was one of the founding partners and Jonah Peretti, 
right, of, yeah. of BuzzFeed. At the exact same time, they hired Jonah Prey. I can't imagine two people oh more God. different, not even ideologically, personally different than those two. Yeah, I think Jonah sort of enjoyed Breitbart, who was this kind of manic idea factory. Yeah, um, kind of. <laughs> yes. and, well, kind of on the manic, yeah. yeah. Ken Lear, the, the yeah. liberal donor and PR guy who was uh, one of the co-founders, loathed. And, yes, and, that comes and, through and in the book. Out. Yeah, so let's talk. Should we talk about the book? Should we talk about what's going on in the uh, in the in the world right now? Because you were the editor in chief of BuzzFeed News, which just closed down. Talk to us a little bit about that. This kind of feeling that one has. I mean, you brought that thing to prominence. I mean, that became the joke was, "What are you going to you know ask qu- questions to the presser about cat videos and such?" And you made it into a bit of a force in media, and now it's gone away. Yeah, I mean, it makes me really sad. Like we were, I felt like we, you know, did a lot of really good journalism there over a period of years. You know, when you leave a place, I guess particularly in the editor, it's pretty important to totally step away and not kind of feel ownership of what, you know, just because it's important that the people who come after you can fix all the things you screwed up and you don't feel personally. So so I, I think it feels, it had been a few years and felt a long way away in a way for me, but still, yeah, it's When did you actually leave? What year? Uh, The very beginning of 2020. Okay. And, and can I ask a very big question that there's probably no one answer to? What happened? What do you think happened between 2020 and them turning the lights off the other two a week ago? I mean, it was, alre- it was already happening. I mean, I think, let's see, there are two ways to answer that. One, and this is kind of the, you know, the, th- the reason I wrote the book, was it yeah. felt like there was this whole era of social media that, whose origin story is in the early aughts in this yeah. neighborhood of lower Manhattan and that kind of comes through, you know, and, and that was ending in 2020. And, and, and BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed News, you know, the whole idea, our sort of conceit in a way was that cable had transformed television in the 80s and there were these new pipes and these new media companies, MTV, ESPN, CNN, grew up as the sort of like custom-built media for these new cables, for these new pipes. And I think the, Jonah had sort of perceived accurately that in some sense the new pipes were Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. and Pinterest and Snapchat and this social web. But what we got wrong, and, and I think he thought and Ken Lear thought that there was a pretty inevitably they would wind up competing based on content mm-hmm. and the network with the better content would win. And eventually they would move from user generated content to professional content and the people making the best content for these new cables would be big successful media companies like Viacom was in its mm-hmm. era. The reality was they never got, they, they were ideologically to, very committed to user-generated content to not moving up that value chain. I mean, I think at some point, a little too late, they realized that they needed, that Netflix was the threat to them with, and started trying to do Netflix-like things on YouTube and Facebook that didn't work at all. But whether it could, whether, I, I don't know whether it ever could have worked or not. Because you that, never did the, the basic, video turn, right? That's but the basic problem was that we were built as the, you know, the content layer for the social web. And the social web is collapsing and going away. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's an insoluble problem. The, you know, the more literal and also true answer is we spent way too much money and didn't bring in enough. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard about that one. But there's a, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people. You know, I worked at Vice, right? <laughs> What's happening at Vice? I don't know, nothing. Nothing. I've, I've, it's apparently some news today, but go ahead. Uh, there's a, there's a, a theory of the case that, uh, as Robbie Suave put it in Reason, that, that there was a murder-suicide that went with the, with the BuzzFeeds of the world and Facebook, uh, in the sense that Facebook drove so much of the traffic and people oriented their operations towards what Facebook would deliver 
while at the same time, a whole lot of different people in the kind of uh, larger journalistic uh, and political ecosystem were busy mow-mowing Facebook, like you're screwing up the elections and you got to stop getting involved in journalism. And so Facebook eventually says, okay, fuck it. <laughs> we're going to step back from this stuff. And then that pulls the rug out from underneath um, uh, sites like BuzzFeed or whoever else. Um, where is that wrong or how, how can that be complicated? Um, I mean, Facebook, right. Facebook turned into at some point because it was delivered so much scale. It became the ref and everybody right and left was working in the ref. Including you guys, which is in your book. And and yeah, you know, direct communications with Facebook. Right. Openly and covertly in every other way. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I think that there's a, some, when the media writes about the social networks, often it's like, we're looking, it's people looking at the telescope from the wrong end. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were making decisions in Silicon Valley that were not about the media industry or about politics. They were about Facebook. They were about the business, the advertising business of Facebook. The, I mean, the, to me, the most interesting kind of choice was that, you know, there's a moment, you know, where in, I guess, maybe 2011, maybe a little earlier, where Twitter starts to take off. Small little social network, yeah. but it has, a, but the line of growth is up and to the right. Mark Zuckerberg sees it and says, huh, this thing keeps growing in that direction. It's going to beat Facebook. How do we copy them, mm-hmm. kill their momentum, take their users the way Facebook had very successfully done with a number of other products? Well, what do they have? They have live news. They have lots of it. Let's dial the news thing way up on Facebook to compete with Twitter. I think if you look back from this vantage point, I think every company would say, oh, my God, no, Twitter can have the entire flaming sewer. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. we will allow Twitter. That's Twitter can have the monopoly on that. Mm-hmm. And no other company wants to be anywhere near it. I like the idea of a sewer on fire. Yeah, which is, which it's is like a sewer right, full of Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Flammable sewer. Yeah. And, I so, mean, and so I think I do think that Facebook made this tactical choice that was not about, you know, our perceptions of ourselves as important yeah. for the world. That was about Facebook's competitive position vis-a-vis other social networks with consumers to have all these links. And then, you know, and then I think, you know, one of the, certainly it just becoming too much of a headache Yes, with liberals saying they were destroying democracy and conservatives saying they were censoring them and who needs this, which was all, you know, which which all of which was true in a fairly limited way um, that they, that, and, and with, but most of all with their users saying, I just am here to look at baby pictures. Why are you feeding me toxic insanity? Yeah. And then also with this migration among users from the web to video and all those things happening at the same time. And so you're running a social network that is really struggling to compete against Netflix and TikTok in the year 2021, 2022. You're mostly going to show people videos. You're not going to be showing them links to, you know, blogs. So, I mean, I get a sense of what you think about the idea that Facebook is destroying democracy or censoring conservatives, that there's a tiny bit of truth to it, but it's mostly bullshit. But at the same time, as you said, you guys are working the refs. I mean, you're desperately trying to get your stuff um, on Facebook and up on that news feed and drives a lot of traffic. But at the same time, after 2016, people are saying, this is the worst thing that ever happened to democracy. And you guys are in there, like, this is part of your business. I mean, what did you make of that idea at the time that had it not been for Facebook and other things, that we would have had a, a a cleaner, nicer election in 2016 and democracy would be in a better place. So one of the pieces I'm really proudest of that we did at BuzzFeed, which for obvious reasons that you will understand no one read, <laughs> was soon after the election, there was a great story in a Swiss magazine called Das Magazine about this Literal, strange yes. guy called Alexander Nix, uh-huh. who was going around claiming that his psychographic tricks with a company that he ran called Cambridge Analytica had uh, won yes. Trump the election. Yes. And this great Swiss reporter had kind of gotten into this presentation where he was making these claims, wrote it up, and it was really interesting. And it got translated and went viral. 
wound up on Vice, actually. And I assigned this great investigative reporter, Kendall Taggart, to get to the bottom of it and, like, tell this great story, like, what really happened. And she really got to the bottom of it. And she was like, this was a scam. This did not happen. Like, the guy did say these things. He was making these marketing claims. But, you know, she talked to the Cruz campaign. And they were like, oh, my God, we hired these guys. They did nothing. It's a joke. She'd gotten to the Trump campaign. She really understood the things they were claiming they could do and realized they could not do them. Um and that was a story that did not go viral. Apparently not. not. That was what, fresh. 2017 that came yeah, out? It was early 2017. Good Lord, because, it, I mean, for years after yeah, that, it did not, it, documentaries. It finally, there was a British government report last year or the yeah, year before yeah, that reached right. the same conclusion. But no, no. I mean, I think I do think it's for sort of historians of the future to look at there's this global rise in right-wing populism that no doubt has 17 different factors it coincides with and feeds and is fed by social media. Obviously, these things are totally intertwined, but I, I think only idiot journalists like us say, well, did one cause the other? <laughs> but some of that sounds like uh, yeah. like when you're talking about Facebook meeting with Twitter, is that in a sense like uh, creating a bubble? It's like the Fed lowering rates and like a bunch of uh, the, that generation of internet companies and Gawker is definitely a big part of that. Uh, kind of got high on their own supply. Um, like, oh, this is this is the new normal. We are uniquely uh, uh, able to do this, and also investors. And boy, my God, is that the vice story, right? Oh, like, God. we can sell investors on this fable about what uh, what uh, what a company. We can sell youth to the yeah. old media. Yeah, and the core. I mean, the core mistake in a way. I mean, there. You know, these are complicated stories, and to me, like, I think that's why I kind of try to write it just as a story, not as sort of a big theory. But the core, you know. Gawker in 2003 starts selling display advertising. They start getting traffic. Mm-hmm. And there's not that much traffic around. If you want to advertise things on the internet, there's not infinite places to go and infinite media companies selling it. And they're selling, I think, a $9 for a thousand CPM, views yeah. Um, yeah. On, you know, on gawker.com. And they kind of, people in that moment are like, we've discovered this like new commodity, this digital yeah. oil, this traffic. And if we can get more, we'll make more money. And also, this is such a rudimentary product, but if we can make it better, we can charge more for it. And it wasn't crazy to have some reason to believe that this thing that you were selling was a commodity that would increase in value and scale. And that just turned out to be wrong. Like That was this fundamental mistake because it wasn't scarce. It, yeah. was, it turned out, there were, in the end, traffic was infinite. Google and Facebook were doing a better job productizing and marketing it and nine dollars today not adjusting for inflation would be a pretty good cpm and in you but you're in a world and you come from a world a newspaper world and you left buzzfeed to go to the new york times uh where traffic is not something you think that much about when you're in a position that you're in you think about content and that's the thing that in in a lot of these discussions you have all these things in your book and these conversations about traffic, traffic, traffic. I'm like, well, what is the actual content? And that I think, and I haven't said this publicly, and I won't go into too much detail about it, but I think that's ultimately what killed Vice is they stopped paying attention to the content they were creating. What was interesting early on was they were doing content that nobody really was doing, and then everyone was doing that, and then they started doing what everybody else was doing, which is following this kind of bore. Like every piece for the past two years was about QAnon. It was an absolute joke. I mean, I made a joke about this the other day, and I took, a, I pulled up the website, and the top story was what QAnon thinks about the firing of Tucker Carlson. It was just no. this obsessive, <laughs> I swear to God, it's nuts. <laughs> and that kind of thing, it's like the content was so boring, and all the stories about Vice, all the stories about the collapse of Vice, no one ever talked about what Vice was actually producing. 
Never. It never was a conversation. And I'm reading your book, and I realize that the end of some of these things is exactly what you're saying, is that this is a cycle. People overestimated uh, what the traffic would be limitless, and it's a supply and demand issue. But what destroys Gawker is the content, right? I mean, it's it's you know, the Hulk Hogan content. It's yeah. people getting mad Although at Gawker, them. Gawker, I would say, Gawker did not have the vice problem. Gawker knew what it was. Yes, knew that, what well, it that's cared true. About. That's true, yes. yes. Um, I mean, BuzzFeed was this... And actually, this is, you know, Jonah Peretti and Nick Dent, the founder of BuzzFeed and Gawker, are the two protagonists of the book, yeah. kind of for this reason. Jonah was not, didn't see himself as a journalist and, in fact, was running these very pure experiments with content. Like, in some sense, he was totally neutral and was experimenting with what people would share. And he was, if it was cat pictures or if it was vagina tattoos or whatever, like it was, you know, or dumb jokes or, you know, like it was, you know, like that was, those were the different things early BuzzFeed was playing with. Yeah. Gawker had this very specific kind of idea and ideology of what the internet was for, which was for saying the unsayable, for for mm-hmm. for saying the things that the sort of stuffy, stuffed shirt, Iraq era U.S. media wouldn't say, and for um, and for showing people things they were embarrassed to ask for, like porn. Yeah, and it followed that, and it really that it never lost that ethos or that theory, but followed it past where you know where. The audience, where 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 the culture could follow it. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it I got think very boringly political. That when you say too. it's all about the content, I mean, Not I think any good content, journalist I think people over. I think they like, overlook a lot of bad content right, choices that and, people make, and and, yeah. and you have to have a voice and a brand and identity. Yeah. You also have to care that people are reading you. I mean, good. Yes, I think good yeah. journalism, like it's so banal to say this, but like you got to care a lot. You want a lot of people to read your story because it's interesting, yeah. and you want it to be good. And those aren't yes. I mean, obviously, those are competing sure. demands. I yeah. think one of the things about Gawker that got lost uh, about midstream of it was that when it started, the Spires uh, here, literally the Gawker, but even to a uh, to a lesser extent, Wonkat, um, they were always like aspirational in a way. So people were were like flinging shit at the dominant culture of the place that they were talking about because they desperately wanted to be part of it too. Um, and but that was. But that was endearing, right? Like, yeah. Was, yeah, I will, I will say what's true. Um, what you know, I'll figure out what journalists are saying in the bar, and we'll print that, and and we'll take people down a peg or seventeen pegs. We'll do all of this, but also there are these sort of outsider insider characters themselves who were kind of strivers, and at at some point, uh, and so like you you retain at least a little bit of affection towards the industry or the people or the society that you're skewering. Um, Spy Magazine kind of had that yeah. too. Um, but then after a while, they stop having, it's well, not also, aspirational. They just hate you. Yeah. Also, they were these young women with no power and no credentials, except that they were great writers, taking shots at these m- immensely powerful institutions like Condé Nast. So, like, and into, you know, and so, of course, so sure, of course, they should have a lot of leeway to take shots. I mean, you know, it's, it's, and I think as the power dynamic shifts and these legacy institutions just start to crumble mm-hmm. and Gawker becomes kind of powerful. Yeah, you know, suddenly they're punching down at random mid-level struggling magazine yeah. people, and I think uh, outing it, people and it's easy to miss. Famous, I mean, yeah. yeah, and it's I think it, when you're in that, I mean, yeah. I felt that when you're, when, I mean, anyone who's sort of come up on the internet, like, at some and, and watched legacy media, sort of, you're, it's there is this funny thing where it's like you go from being this outsider who nobody takes seriously, which frees you to do a lot of stuff and think it's harmless. To a place where you're the insiders and yeah. you have a lot of power and you have to be responsible about it. And I think that is a hard, I mean, I have personally found that to be a psychologically hard adjustment. Yeah, I, was, I mean, look, I think the, the, the word most associated with Gawker now in the rearview mirror is cruelty. I yeah. mean, most people think of it as it was a cruel thing that just was, well, I mean, I, there was something I didn't realize, um, a lot of things I didn't realize when I was reading your book. 
is the Brett Favre thing and A.J. Delario, who oh, didn't yeah. talk to you for the book, right? He, right, yeah. That um, I was totally unaware that this woman who kind of gave him the story said, this is off the record. And he says, I don't fucking care about that. I'm printing it. And it's like, wow, that's its own level of cruelty that this woman like didn't want to be outed. And he went and published it anyway. She told him that was like things that you didn't see very often, that people had access to these stories. And they were like, eh, you know, in, in the journalism world, we, you know, we, abide by these rules and they say, fuck it, we're not going to abide by these rules. And sometimes that seems to have really backfired. I mean, look, I mean, Matt, no, you've known Nick since Eastern Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always, and you were always fascinated. It was always fascinating to talk to, to you about Nick because when Gawker in its kind of last years was very political, the guys like Hamilton Nolan, it was like just kind of a lefty political, a lot more serious. And you would always tell me like, Nick's politics really aren't that. I just, which I was always really interested. I in. can't stop laughing every time I hear Hamilton Nolan's name. It just, I'm sorry, <laughs> Hamilton. I know you don't like me, whatever, but like, he's such like a labor rabble. Hamilton Nolan. Yeah, yeah it sounds um, a bit, sounds a bit wasp. The third. Um, I think he's a pretty good reporter, and I, 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 I think that these ethnic slurs, these ethnic slurs have no against wasps. Yeah, on this, but the last, the last <laughs> ethnicity that you're allowed. Yeah, to yes. Well, we we find the one that you can, and we go after them. <laughs> That's possibly true. No, Nick. Nick was a Tory. You know, he was he was a uh, it was an FT guy. He was a uh, what um, uh, he thought American newspapers were just deadly, dull, boring. And he was right about that. I mean, right. he loved, he loved- There's another great fact from Ben's book is that his dad, dad was mad at him for working for the Telegraph because it was too right-wing, which is hilarious. That's funny. <laughs> his dad's a sweetheart. Um, that the, uh, it, he, he had a very like uh, a, a strong case against political correctness. He changed over time, sure, and, and, uh, and, and you know, uh, adapted to life and um, started smoking pot and all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, it- there's a commonality between what happened at Gawker and what happened at Vice. And I'm kind of curious to the extent at all it happened at uh, at BuzzFeed, which I'm not really aware of the, the internals of the place, um, and to the extent which you will now admit, which you wouldn't last time around this program, that this happened at New York Times, <laughs> um, which is that like- Was I then an employee? Yes, yeah, you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. A, it was a bad week. Yeah. Fascinating. Like, this was like the first, when you were last on, it was like the first 30 minutes of an interrogation before somebody breaks. <laughs> yeah. and, like, I, and I was like a brand new employee of the New York Times. Yes, and you yeah. were like, tell us everything yes, that's wrong course. with the New that's York Times. Yes, of course. We're supposed yeah. to do yes. um, and you're I, supposed I, I don't to, think I broke. You're, no, you you <laughs> most certainly did not. You stonewalled us. Yeah, uh, I've, done, I've done my share of depositions at this point in my life. I don't doubt that. But no, the way that the way that Vice in particular and Gawker in particular, yeah. more, th- more so than almost any other places, became... The opposite of the original intent. Yeah, like, for sure. My God, it was just like Gavin McInnes and Cunnilingus and just awful behavior and hilarious behavior everywhere with Vice, and it became a the super- vi- There was literally the Vice guy eating pussy. Uh, that, the, was, that was a very popular- It yes. became the opposite of all of that. Yeah. Gawker became, in many ways, the opposite of the editorial ethoses of that. Uh, I'm curious in, in, in reconstituting this, and if there's any BuzzFeed thing that's, uh, that's like that, why do you think that- seems to be happening with salon.com is another example. This is the generation before the generation that you're covering here, but the same thing happened there. That used to be a heterodox society changed a lot and culture changed a lot. And Buzzfeed wasn't part Buzzfeed was not a, it wasn't of the center, right. Or whatever that is, the libertarian, right. I mean, but I, I mean, the other thing is that if you look back on a lot of this stuff, along with cruelty, enormous amount of misogyny, I mean, just sort of like the way women are written and treated about and are uh, written about and treated in early Gawker, the whole Julia Allison saga, oh, hilarious right. at the time, 
kind of insane in retrospect. Yeah, can you? Re- I mean, and it's an revisit- internet, and it's an internet where like Perez Hilton was like yeah. the leading blogger, and his big joke was to draw semen on women's yes, faces. Like that yes, was the joke. That I don't was e- a weird. And actually, yes. like whatever. Like society weird, yeah. has definitely changed in, enough that in I'm MS not MS Paint. Not like yeah, like, but I don't know. Do you remember why that was funny? Because I can't quite get myself into the headspace I where that was hilarious. I don't think right? I ever thought it was funny. like it was I a pretty did. different moment. And actually, to me, actually, the part of the book that like both was about this moment most and sort of revealing that one was, you know, I had, Jezebel was not a site I grew up reading because I'm a guy. And that like 2007 year of Jezebel when Denton hires Anna Holmes, who, mm-hmm. you know, everybody always told me she was a genius and I had not followed her career well enough. And then now having done that, I was like, well, she's a genius. Um, but, and she, you know, basically because he wants to sell beauty products. And, um, and he keeps on saying to her, where's the lipstick? Yeah, and, yeah. and she has, is a disgruntled veteran of women's magazines who wants to blow them up and sees all their hypocrisy in a way that is very, in some ways, simpatico with Nick, just sees through all their bullshit and wants to expose it. And, does, and it feels so much like the internet 10 years later in that they both, you know, start highlighting how few black models there are in these glossy magazines. And the glossy magazines are embarrassed and put in more black models. And they start writing about women's lives the way women actually live and talk rather than the bullshit of glossy magazines. And to me, that feels very constructive. And they also develop a totally pathological relationship with their commenters and their audience and are driven crazy by them and are sort of, if they step out of line ideologically, are sort of attacked ferociously by this new kind of identity-driven internet commenter and find themselves in kind of their own little outrage culture. And it was this like incredibly compelling product that did all this cool stuff and the Do writing. Do they realize that? Do, do, does so. Anna realize that? Because yeah. that's like you totally. present this no, as I'm like take, the urtext of yeah, no, this, I, and it really is. It is, and I know no, I'm taking this from her. Like yeah, she, okay, like, okay. yes, this. Has, I think I'm not quoting her, but I do think this. Has yeah, it seems right to me. Yeah. And, she, and you know, and they both, and they both do, and the writing is spectacular. I mean, it's really an amazing year, but also it is totally consumes itself and self immolates and is incredibly damaging to the women writing it like psychologically. I mean, it's really it purity spirals and stuff. Yeah. Like that. And it just feels like, wow, like they lived through all of Twitter in the year 2007, <laughs> like these five yeah. women. It's really yeah. an amazing. What was it about that time? Cause you talk about that in the Jezebel case. I mean, you can see other Gawker properties having, having similar things happen to vice. It absolutely happened to what, I mean, I look back and maybe I'm wrong about this. And that I look in the eighties, the nineties, seventies, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of media properties blowing up in those times. It's obviously a lot more limited, right? There's a limited number of these things. And there's little scandals and things. I mean, the internet find. is a pretty amazing The internet is a pretty so amazing cool. thing in the sense Check it that- out. Like, e- While but, it's still around. But, e- but, the, but the thing about it is that can you do these things? I mean, there are a lot of people that have these you know, publications. It happens, obviously, at the New York Times. We mentioned that briefly. But is that because of the internet, do you think? Is that a change in the culture? Is it because, you know, I always felt advice that the teachers were afraid of the pupils at a certain point. They hire a bunch yeah, of 20 years no, and was scared of them. It felt in the 2010s like the core dynamic in media was that the old people were afraid of the young people. Yeah, yeah. And is that, do you think, why there are all these implosions? I mean, you see these. I think this uh, is, yeah. I mean, honestly, like this is basically the case for Gen X. Like we alone can navigate these straits. <laughs> I will I accept keep, that. I keep saying it. So how do you? And this is this is the question. Well, at least maybe we're the we're the old people now. Yeah, yeah. That's mind. also the true. feral yeah. Zoomers are coming for us. This is a question that I asked Hamish McKenzie at Substack the first time I met him, and I'll ask you because you're building a company now, uh, Semaphore. Um, how do you avoid? How do you build in a safeguard from that happening to you? I mean, I, you know. 
I think the kind of reporter who just wants to figure out what's going on and get the facts uh, mostly has a pretty thick you. skin. And I, I, I did, I, I guess I've never felt like I was, I mean, I, I've like, I mean, at the time, the Times has this very specific set of cultural challenges that probably come with being a 1700 person institution. Yeah. But I also think that, I don't know, like, I, I, I do not think that, I don't totally buy that you know, millennials are these hyper-politicized, sensitive people who refuse to do work. I think there's... Gen- it's, gen- I, I, it's Gen Z. I don't really buy gen- these generational <laughs> stereotypes. I think there's a vast diversity within them. And, except and, for Gen X, which is awesome. Except yeah. for Gen X, which is, which is great. But like, And that, like, I don't know, I love great reporters who want to break news and make trouble. And I think there's... And, and, if, and my management sort of theory on all of it, you just got to stay focused on the work and, and organize around, organize your internal conversations around what you're actually doing, not around your relationships with one another. It could also be that you were smart enough not to start in 2019 or 2020 when journalism was losing its damn fool mind. Not just, oh, oh I think managing institutions in the year during the pandemic mm-hmm. was incredibly challenging and didn't really have that much to do with like, were you managing PepsiCo or a movie theater chain or a newspaper? Can you talk a little bit about Semaphore? So Moynihan likes it. I'm still trying to understand it. Uh, I, I uh, <laughs> and we we know it's it's we have it's at like a eleventh grade reading level. It is. I know. I college dropout. Really understand this and stuff. Kind of rough for me. Um, <laughs> so it's a publication. It's also newsletters and events. Um, what is it? What's the selling? What's the what's the? How are you beating the business cycle? What the fuck are you doing? Um, so, I mean, the basic theory of the case is just that if you ask people right now what bothers them about the news, like, A, everything, they hate everything and feel overwhelmed. But basically, there are, these, there are two things. They feel like there's just so much out there and they can't sort through the, like, messy chaos of late social media and the manifold articles and videos coming at them from all directions. And that when they do, they don't really know who to trust. And so we're trying to kind of run at those challenges. Like, I mean, and that largely means building around individual journalists, having them try to write in this very like stylized way that says, here's what I know, here's my analysis or my opinion of it, here's somebody who disagrees with me, and then here's all the other, and here are other things you should read in that space. So if you don't trust me, you don't have to go out and Google 11 other things to try to triangulate what is going on, because I think that's what people often do. What Ben is describing is like it's literally in every piece. They have those subheads. Yeah, we call it the semaphore. And it's it's not honestly that... I mean, these are the elements of journalism. It's yeah. just that the tradition is that you hide which one is which. And we're, you know, that part, this, this part is like, I'm going to hide my opinion by putting it in the mouth of an expert I have chosen because that expert shares my opinion mm-hmm. is the traditional way you do it in newspapers. So I don't know. So that's, the, I mean, that's the core idea is just to try to be really transparent about the journalism. And also, I do think that maybe lamentably, but we definitely live in an age where people connect with and trust individuals more than they trust institutions. That's a lot of why people love audio. It's, um, you know, it's why people, it's also why the Republican Party and Democratic Party don't matter anymore and people connect to individual political leaders. Like it's a, it's not a media trend, but it is a, it's part, I think if you're building something new now, that is sort of how you build trust is around the individuals. So if you, you know, Matt's question of why semaphore, why now? What is the need that is being filled? If you go backwards, which is what you do in this book, what are you? What is one to come away with, and what do you come away with after aggregating all this information, interviewing all of these people over a very long period of time, and looking at people like 
Breitbart, which is is a subject in the book, Drudge, which is one, the only website in this that has actually managed to be as successful now than it was in the past. And God knows Incredible. who's running it at this point. Well, Matt Drudge is running it. That's but that's that's what I find interesting because I've talked to people about this. And there's conspiracy theories that Matt Drudge is not running it because his politics have changed. When oh, there have always been theories that someone kidnapped Drudge, or that the, Chi- the Chinese bought it, is the one that I hear the most. The red talking Chinese. to people, incredible. But you know, and 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 Matt Drudge, who not long ago was uh, do- doing an interview in shadow with Alex Jones and linking almost exclusively to Alex Jones when it came to like right-wing people. But you look at all this stuff. I mean, where do you come out in the end of this when you've, you've done this stuff and you're sitting down to write the book? I presume you're writing it piecemeal, but your, your conclusion on this is what? What, do you, what, is, what did you walk away from this project thinking? Well, I would say the biggest surprise to me in the book was, you know, I was writing about this, you know, when you, when you arrive at a scene mm. every the first thing people say to you is ah oh, you should have been here last year like yeah. that's when things <laughs> were great and I, that's sort of my story right like i was yeah. a political reporter in the aughts and kind of copied gawker a lot but wasn't part of that scene and then got to buzzfeed in 2012 and heard all about how great it had been before that and so kind of set out to write about the scene that i was like kind of curious and jealous about and and really had basically thought about as this obviously kind of progressive downtown new york liberal um world and 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 that's how they saw themselves mostly not nick but most of them HuffPost was totally oriented toward the election of barack obama that was sort of the culmination and barack obama visits facebook you know which totally makes sense like that goes without saying that facebook is kind of a democratic institution you know about empowering college kids to vote for barack obama like that's the point of facebook and to me the thing i hadn't quite seen is like oh but you know what chris Poole, who founded 4chan is working out of buzzfeed's office and Breitbart is a co-founder of HuffPost, and oh, there's Steve Bannon passing through, and Benny Johnson, and Benny Johnson, my, who I who I hired, and actually, huh, looks like the culmin- like the apogee of that moment is not the re-election of Barack Obama; it's the election of Donald Trump. Like, <laughs> surprise, mm-hmm. those were the main characters, not us. And that that to me was the most interesting thing. And I don't think I'm not trying to make some point that like Facebook caused Donald Trump, but the extent to which that era was totally bound up with this new right wing populism. And that that was the main story. Of was it was moment. it insular in the sense like sort of navel gazing uh, media world where everyone's progressive, everyone's downtown, everyone's having these like you know it's funny reading this book of these like fights between <laughs> between people at this or Gawker and and HuffPo and it's like nobody else in the fucking world has any idea this the is going internet on. Internet was insular. The instant internet was insular. It's like this vast thing that is incredibly insular. There just weren't that many people on it yet. Yeah, and and but it, I mean, are you saying in some way that? That because of that, and maybe too big of a leap to take, that no one's really paying attention to what's going on to, you know, right-wing populists. And, and this other thing that is bubbling up is very easy to dismiss. And Matt and I were talking about this when we were recording before about Tucker Carlson, is that few people want to, you know, on cable news specifically, things that we've been on, Tucker Carlson, white nationalists, that and the other, you know, three and a half million viewers in cable news, he's the biggest guy out there. Why? What are what is what is resonating with people? And it's very there are fewer conversations about that. And I wonder if that was something that you think that the end of this is Donald Trump, is that was no one in the media world writ large paying attention and Joe Rogan happened and Tim Poole, uh, who used to work at Vice, by the way, uh, these people became successful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just that we, people weren't paying attention. Older people were not on the internet. Yeah. Like the Conservatives are mostly older, and you know Tucker Carlson's viewers are much older. Yeah. And 
So, the, but but their sort of future leaders were watching the style and the tactics of a kind of gentle progressive populism that came up around Obama and Howard Dean, I guess, like that that style and that that tactics and the set of tools. Once the conservative base is ready, is you know online on Facebook, yeah, a lot of that same those same tactics get deployed. Things like that. Still, I mean, you know. Three and a half million people. It's a country of three hundred and fifty uh, yeah, million. It's not, it's not that big a number. Yeah, it's not that. It's not that big. Although Brian Stelter is like always trying to turn that into seventy million. He's got this uh, math that he uses. He actually, uh, speaking of someone who uh, you know uh, has become more interesting since he left CNN. It's true. Um, his yeah. his writing about uh, Tucker at Vanity Fair has been pretty interesting. Um, but one of those things is like, well, the actual reach of these people is like sixty five million instead of three and a half million, and I think that might be a little bit. Um, fuzzy. Uh, the but, clips, the clips do really well on YouTube. But Carlson, I mean, obviously yeah. had a lot of influence and was a special thing. Yeah, I mean that. I don't know who said it. Um, there was something I was reading the other day, and this is absolutely but, true. That I mean, it might, might have been the. I was the woman who's suing Abby Grossberg. Grossberg. Yeah, who said, you know, and this seems to me obviously true that people in Republican leadership would basically call and say, "Can you please be on our side? Because we're fucked if you're not." And that's yeah. kind of terrifying. That's right? what was interesting about yeah. him is that he was not, I mean, Fox News mostly employs, you know, appealing to the base, sort of like entertaining Republican apparatchiks who more or less try to get Republicans elected and follow the party line and attack Democrats. And Tucker was doing something totally different. Tucker yes, was yeah. elevating Victor Orban and Nayib Bukele and had this sort of global, sort of global populist idea and was bringing fringe voices to the center and was ho- very hostile to the re- much of the organized Republican Party. And I think didn't particularly care if Republicans won elections, yeah. which is very important to Rupert Murdoch. Um, so, yeah, I do. I mean, I think he was a pretty, Jimmy Dore, pretty major figure. That was the most amazing thing, having seeing Jimmy Dore on doing a long chomsky I bit. I mean, it was the most amazing, perfectly Chomsky thing about American foreign policy. To which T- Tucker was vigorously nodding, and he's like, "You know, I think you're right about everything." And it was like, it really was. It just, it's yeah, I mean, just I think- Chomsky is Chomsky kind of thing. And whether you like that or not, it was just odd to see it on Fox News. Yeah, and he was. I mean, he was certainly probably the most influential voice pulling the Republican, peeling the Republican Party away from Ukraine. Yeah, that's absolutely true. What is uh, your interpretation of the video that he made? We're recording this on Thursday afternoon, I think. Um, the video he made uh, Wednesday night. Um, little two minute kind of like from I mean, his, you know, he's he's getting he has a year, uh, roughly a year left on a twenty million dollar a year contract that seems keeps happening to him. Doesn't that it? likely stipulates that he can't <laughs> say anything, and so, but you know, an hour before he put up that video, the 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 latest in a deluge of hostile leaks from Fox had said that he had said things so unspeakably racist that they could not be repeated, yeah, or described. Mm-hmm. But that quite, I mean, I'm not, it sounds plausible to me, but that the board freaked out, saw them and fired him. And so felt to me like he wanted to go out there and sort of be himself with, while saying nothing of any substance. It was like a veep segment, you know, like it was, <laughs> what's that line about, you know, like word shaped air. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was sort of Tucker Carlson word shaped air. And I think, I mean, he presumably wants to preserve his options and keep doing it. And what is it as a media it. reporter, um, which is what you were at the New York Times. I mean, what are you hearing from people about, about the inner kind of turmoil at Fox. Are people I mean, talking to you about this? Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, I've covered Fox for a long time. And one of the things about Fox is that the people in charge of communications at Fox 
have been on a Irina Braganta, years long project just to pretend. Sounds like a mobster, by the way. <laughs> you can <laughs> laugh at it. Just, not, my my grandmother is from Calabria. Just the, just the yeah, yes. slurs. Trying to make sure white they're anti white slurs. It's fine. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> trying to make sure I'm never on that network again. <laughs> yeah. I want to but um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they you know they they try to tell this story that in the, after Roger Ailes left, which when, when Roger Ailes like you know not widely lamented, ran at some level was a normal company yeah. where the visionary CEO made decisions and people said, okay, we'll do that boss. And then Murdoch took over and runs things in a more chaotic, shambolic way and for himself for a while. And now they like to, they sort of tell stories to the media through anonymous sources as though this is a company with a CEO who tells people to do things and they do it. And that's just demonstrably not true. You see in all these emails, the inmates totally run the asylum. Mm -hmm. So there've been all these leaks out of Fox that are, I think there were like seven or eight different reasons that, you know, Lachlan Murdoch (laughs) and Suzanne Scott sat down and had a meeting and made some thoughtful decisions and decided it was time to end Tucker's show for one of 11, you know, Ukraine or racism, whatever. Stuff was in subordination, using, using misogynistic language, stuff that he's just obviously done for years and wasn't new. And then... They, but the, in fact, what happened was they called him 10 minutes before they were firing him, fired him and sent out an email. And it just, I mean, Rupert Murdoch runs the company. Mm-hmm. His, his, you know, has this, has always had a sort of unusually kind of weak layer of executives under him because mm-hmm. he runs it himself. And, you know, who who knows why Rupert Murdoch, we still don't really know why Rupert yeah. Murdoch woke up and decided to fire Tucker Carlson. But, you know, what what was the last straw? But he's made a series of like, Fairly impulsive decisions. Like, yeah. like he tried to merge his company with you know, Fox and News Corp, changed his mind, decided not to. And everyone forgets, by the way, that he did fire that uh, guy that I could never pronounce, Dan Bongino, yeah. who yeah. was very popular there and did, did very good numbers. He, If you look at the Facebook leaderboard of story, Dan Bongino is always in oh, top yeah. five. Big, big very- following. So I don't really know what's going on over there, but I would assume it has to do with what Rupert Murdoch wants, not with some kind of normal corporate decision making. Do you think that it reflects like a momentary flash of anger? Does that, I mean, the... Who knows? Yeah, know, the guy's yeah. 92. He was engaged. He has a lot of momentary last, flashes. Yeah. He was engaged for two weeks last month. And Which then was one of the off. conspiracy theories, by the way. That oh, she had dinner she, with Tucker Carlson. She's a and Tucker was fan. Like, it was evangelical. Yes. Yeah, so so I, there's, 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 a, there's a basic conspiracy theory, yeah. which you are saying, which is that, that, that she was a big fan of Tucker Carlson. And so despite his acts, he fired her. Like, yes, that's totally plausible, yeah. relatable. I want that to be true. That makes sense. Well, he I fired would, her from being his wife, too. So. Or that he fired her. I mean, that kind of oh. like, like, I like that. But the less basic version of that theory yeah. is if you read Gabe Sherman's coverage in Vanity Fair of the breaking off of the engagement, there's a scene at a lunch, I believe, mm-hmm. where the participants in the lunch are Tucker Carlson, Rupert Murdoch, and the ex, now ex. So if Rupert Murdoch isn't the source of that, and Tucker Carlson, and, and um, the ex isn't the source of that, who's talking to Gabe Sherman? Mm-hmm. And do you think Rupert Murdoch might Possibly be a little... Nobody. Might, might be Gabe Sherman. <laughs> well, or it might be Tucker Carlson, who does talk yeah. to reporters all day. Yes, he does. And, and if and, you were Rupert yes. Murdoch, and you were seeing details of a small lunch you'd yeah. had with one other person... Reported, you might be a little annoyed about that. Can I ask that's you a question? This is a, this so that's my like, that's my you know, four dimensional chess. My my uh, my theory is semaphore related. But go on. No, this is a question I think listeners um, are interested in. I people have asked me a similar questions in the past, um, and people don't understand this. And I have my own theories about it. For it's different for everybody. But why does Tucker Carlson? Why do people at Fox News talk to you? 
you are, I mean, if you watch that network, you're at the New York Times, the dreaded New York Times, which is insulted every five minutes on the network, but then they turn to you. And yeah. then they, they call you and will give you information. And then as you get this information, how do you, you know, determine which stuff is real and which stuff is part of a play to, to make you do their bidding? You know, Michael, it seems like some of these folks might not be totally on the level. I think that's it. <laughs> but how do you figure out which ones are and which ones aren't and what to report? I mean, it's really hard. And a lot of, if you read reporting on Fox News, it yeah. is full of it's false and contradictory yes. stuff. Yeah. It's so good. And it's really because every, lots of people lie. Yeah. Um, we talked about this before you I don't know. On. You, talk, you try to talk yeah. to lots of different people and get yeah. and triangulate what's really going on, like, like in any other institution, but it's a weirder one. It's hair and makeup. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's where you're going to get the truth. It's but, always I mean, that's where thing. I found out the stuff about um, Eric Bowling. And I said, to, I, yeah, I knew that before anyone else. And I told somebody about it and they were like a media reporter. And they were like, yeah, not just knew it. I saw, I saw it. it. I saw it. <laughs> Unimpressive, by the way. That's, that's what you go over to OAN or whatever the hell he is now. We're not going to go any further no, no, than no, that. No, 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 no. I did actually. This is that, real Gawker territory. Yeah, this is real Gawker territory. Into here. Yeah. Someone's got to keep it real. <laughs> I have very good sources in the hair and makeup uh, no, I do, I do find it interesting that people, because it's a very common question. People don't think it all the way through. Is that how, why does somebody talk to you in the first place? You have, you're balancing eight people, but the fact that eight people talk to you, to, you know, when there are conservative outlets to go to yeah, is pretty interesting. It is interesting. And, and the sort of extent to which the kind of news gathering apparatus remains the mainstream media. And yep. there isn't a parallel conservative, like, truth finding yes. machine. Even though Tucker Carlson once said he was going to start Which is what The Daily Caller was, was meant to be, to be, but turned out nobody wanted that. That speech is really interesting to watch now, which he gave at CPAC, I think, in 2009-ish. Nine or 10. And he mentions The New York Times, and there was a chorus of boos. And he says, no, 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 hold on, hold on. They do good work. We just have to do the same type of work that they do, but from our perspective and not from the left. And the moment that he realized that he wasn't going to be doing that after all is a pretty interesting moment. I mean, I know uh, quite a few people who worked at the Daily Caller for bits of time. So there was, uh, I was going back and just... Uh, Googling uh, whatever I had written or, or using the reason search engine about Tucker Carlson. He's been around and we've all been around for long enough yeah. that like, and gone through so many permutations. I'd totally forgotten that Mickey Kaus, right, was hired as the sure. Kaus Files oh, blogger yeah. over there. He quit. Why did he quit? Because he wa wanted to write whatever he wanted to write, including criticizing Fox News. Mm -hmm. And Tucker's oh, like- Oh, that was the one thing you couldn't do. That's right. The one thing you couldn't do in 2015. That was just a way of saying like, hey, look, we're not going to do this. Um, and by this, I mean shutting off our phones. Yeah, it's very, I, don't even know I think it's it on top there. of the computer. Oh, there it is. Oh, Sue Bennett. Yeah. Should I take this? Yeah, well, take it. Tell, take it. Tell Sue I say hi. You know her? Oh, yeah. I answer? It's Sue Ma, right? Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is the excitement of uh, live podcasting yeah. people uh, when we're right here in the, uh, in the nerve center of the media. Um, so just wrote a book about this period of social media. A lot of people think that last week was the week that that era of social media dies. You're in the middle of not just the book tour, but of building a company that has its own theories about the era that we're going into. So what is your initial kind of instincts uh, or guesses about the post-social media era of news? Is it just Substack and newsletters all the way down? Is there going to be a coalescing or are, there, are the silos going to come together and create kind of group projects that have some of the same kind of uh, uh, attraction to people that individual writers have? I mean, I do think that this this thing about a sort of attraction to individuals is pretty profound, like over, over sort of brands. I mean, I think, 
you know, it's this process that started in Hollywood like 75 years ago, and yeah. the news business has finally caught up. But um, And in television news and almost every more functional part of the media industry, sports. And, and so I don't think that that's about to go away. I, think, I do think that – and it's, you know, it, for journalists, like when you start talking about influencers and talent and brands, everybody like throws up in their mouths a little bit. Like it's not our vibe. But um, but I do think that's like kind of how you connect to people and build trust. And I think that's likely – I do think that that's going to be the big challenge for big media is like if you're the New York Times, if you're the Washington Post, how do you stay the New York Times and the Washington Post while having Maggie Haberman be Maggie Haberman? And I think that's a real challenge for all those places. And, you know, I don't really envy the management challenges that come with that because there's this really kind of lovely egalitarian culture of newsrooms. And yet the pull from – the world is to a star system. Star system and the unbundling. And yeah. and it's possible that Substack and kind of the great migration, sort of the squeezing out of some uh, larger than life, hard to hold, hard to pigeonhole personalities, the Tybee Greenwalds of the universe, and not just necessarily uh, people who you associate politically, um, when they leave and go to a Substack or Matty Glacius even, you know, from Vox, um, and immediately show that they probably had more value than they were being valued. At. Yeah, that's right. There's a more monetary value, right? I mean, it's a it's a very it's a complicated thing. Like we're certainly like it's that's one of the places it's a luxury to start from scratch. Like take the world as it is. Say to Liz Hoffman, you know, maybe the best Wall Street reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Like we want to give you kind of the upside and the brand and the sort of value of being having a Substack, but the support and the colleagues and the of, of a new great newsroom. And that's sort of the pitch we're making today with your old colleague, Dave Wag, all the people like, I mean, I think we, you know, it's, it's a kind of a good world in which to be a reporter. Um, sorry. And the, the broader question, it's sort part, of where's it all headed question. And, and also like, uh, like maybe to, uh, to react to a, a way of thinking about it. So I've always uh, looked at the traditional sort of legacy media, especially their subscription model uh, to the extent that it existed because it's mostly ad driven but it was always about eating your Wheaties. Like you do this because of course you subscribe to your local paper. You have yeah. to, democracy is going to die in darkness if you don't. I think and, that's and the, a late stage and panicked the, marketing that doesn't work. Of course. But like, but still the, the, the notion back when they were fat and printing, you know, the 25% profit margins every year, um, you did it cause you had to, as part of being a good citizen, um, that, a model of doing it because you you have to or you should subscribe to something has just been absolutely collapsing. While um, you talked about Netflix, and I know you meant it in terms of video, but also Netflix started the process of what we were hoping in the blogging days would be micro payments, right? Like direct payments for a thing that you like. People started finally showing money to people. Once you can make that happen to individual writers, then you have instead of the your weedy subscriptions, you have your affinity. Uh, subscriptions. I am giving this podcast, this individual money because I like him or her or it, um, the thing. And so my, I can see both of those things happening simultaneously. The, the question, I think it's really interesting and it seems like you guys are sort of in this and Barry Weiss, the free press in her own ways in, in this, can you build an institution that synthesizes the two that has newsroom like capabilities but is getting that sweet, sweet affinity, money, I mean, and relationship. I mean, that is certainly what we're trying to do. And I, I think if you look what we're doing, it's working pretty well. Like, we feel good about that. And you just described what we're trying to do. Except that I think on the business side, uh, the one thing I feel like I've learned is you just can't be ideological about revenue. Like, you, you know, people come and say, well, you know, subscription is the future. And the great right. thing about subscription is that it gives you this 
true relationship with your reader and then people say no no advertising means that it's free and it's democratic and like people are just talking their books we want to hire journalists and pay them well and do good work and advertising is a great historic industry that can do that and subscriptions are great and events actually are a great business and maybe podcasts are great business but I do think, and having totally done this myself at BuzzFeed and sort of been like, oh no, like the free internet, like you just, I just think you can talk yourself out of employment if you get too <laughs> ideological about revenue, like save the ideology for the editorial side. So uh, what I'm hearing is that basically Matt Drudge won. He won the internet. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious, right? I Isn't do think that's something we can, it's incredible. And I think actually, one thing I realized, Max Tani said to me the other day, like, he's like, you know, I always used to go to Drudge Report occasionally to see what, just sort of kind of see what Matt Drudge was thinking. But now I just go there to see what's happening in the world because Twitter doesn't do that. That's anymore. how it started. I mean, that's, that's how we did it. Yes, it's yeah. the old it's, thing. You have to go to a webpage to see what's happening. At some point. Uh, uh, or you can watch the evening news. Fairly early <laughs> in the Twitter years. The despondent. You can watch the evening news. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, honestly, like I was, you know, I was on CBS this morning, CBS mornings the other day. Which is like, and I'm like, wow, this thing is like totally doing great and BuzzFeed is gone. BuzzFeed yeah. News is gone. And like, yeah. if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would, I, we were so triumphalist about the internet. Yeah. It was just like all this TV stuff's going to be out of business and, you know, we're going to inherit the earth. And I mean, that did not happen. Are you saying that TV is the new TV? No, I think, <laughs> honestly, I think a lot of these legacy institutions that we internet people thought, really saw, thought we're going to go out of business. I mean, some of them did. Some of them really did collapse during the 2010s, but I think basically the ones that have weathered that period, now you see streaming re converging back to TV, basically. Yeah. Who do you see as, as weathering those storms? NBC, CBS, um, Disney. I mean, so the big, all the old, the, all the old, yeah, the New York Disney's Times. laying yeah. off a ton of people. Though, right? I, I remember saying that the in the blog, cycle. the blogging thing, it was a blogging revolution. It was a Gutenberg press in everybody's house and it would be, you know, a flattening, equ which, and it then, was? It, which it was for a bit, but after about five years, all the big bloggers were people like Andrew Sullivan, people that you knew for years, who someone who edited the new Republic in the early nineties and the big bloggers were people who had, you know, just been around and guess what? People in the business had skills. And journalism had skills and people wanted that. They didn't really want to have the sort of heavy breathing of some random person. And it filtered out to well, these I mean, people that won. We all used to be random people too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, Still are. Yeah. I've mentioned before, but Andrew Sullivan, I'll never let him forget that he once referred to me as the previously obscure Matt Welch because he- Oh, wow. Oh, this is incredible. Like on, on September 20th, 2001. But you know that- What that rendered you unobscure? Uh, I started my weblog, the war blog. Yeah, I and, remember. And people yeah. started uh, linking to it and talking about yep, it. I was but you, you're not- refresh. You're not, that's still kind of true, that you're obscure. And the reason I say that is because I just read a book um, by a guy named Ben Smith, lovely guy named Ben Smith. It fails yeah. to give Matt Welch his due. Uh, no, it, 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 uh, it doesn't misgender him, it misnames him. What? Both in the uh, two times as Will oh Welch. <laughs> oh, yes. this is the nightmare. I can't believe yes. you're doing this to me. I'm sorry, Ben. Oh my, no, this is it's literally just, my it nightmare. just remembered when he said the previously obscure, and I think he's still oh, obscure. No. Oh, oh, no, no. Matt. I'm this is, so sorry. This is sorry. not on camera. This yeah, it's not on camera. camera. They yeah. can't see you blush. Yeah, yeah. No, but this is, I mean, as an internet person, like my literal nightmare of this whole book thing and I've made it this yes. far without this happening yep. is yeah. that there's an error and I can't yep. fix it because it's well, Thankfully, it's in the notes. Oh. So, 
It's just the notes. No, it's, it's I, uh, terrible. I'm, yeah, it's I just in this. the end notes. And I, this is, this is why books are terrible I, and you should only write on the internet. That's exactly. Because I want to log into the yeah, website. Yeah, just get in there and <laughs> like, fix it. I, if we were talking about a story, I would be opening my laptop. I would be fixing it. I would be adding uh, a correction. Yes. And we'll have to wait till the second edition. There's two. Okay, Ooh, it's been printed. I'm opening an errata file. On yes. <laughs> is that the only one? Have you yes. found any others? I'm sure there will be others. I am yes. so proud to be the first one. Yeah, I mean, that uh, you should be. I mean, it's I know. It's alliterative. It's Will it, I mean, it is a person. It is just not you or the person I talked yeah. to. Oh, do you, do you know someone named Will Yeah, there's Welch? a journalist named Will Welch. <laughs> oh, okay. It's not, I mean, I don't know. Who, who knew Nick Denton? Who I must have yeah. read, mentioned something as I was writing up the notes or something like that. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, because you he's can't the, He's this. the editor of GQ. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, he's getting thanked. I was like, I, mean, I, wa- I was like, you know, I wanted to thank, I, I wanted to thank Matt, but there's like a sort of sartorial qualification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. I'll just go with the guy who dresses better. He'd, well, I'm that wrong. is undeniably true. Well, also not hard. <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt. I actually heart. hate that. And I no, hate I, making I, mistakes. I'm, I'm honestly sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, you, that you sandbagged me on a podcast? No, well, I more, sandbagged you, and it was just wow. well, it was, I just remembered it because he said he said that it was previously obscure, and I was like, well, you know, maybe still. It's, I, I think it's hilarious, but I know it's not fun. I don't, yeah, I have no sense of humor about getting things wrong. <laughs> oh, we don't it's care. Fine, Matt doesn't it's care. Fine. It's also, it's in the notes. If it was throughout the entire thing. I mean, again, I wrote about a similar book, the one that, 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 you, that you just wrote, um, and, and I, note, I noted some errors. Uh, from a woman who used to be the editor of the New York Times, and that was a little worse than uh, in oh, the oh uh, yeah, Jill Jill Abramson. That, that I mean, that honestly, like your writing about that book. I mean, well, I think here's the thing: I think actually one of, I mean, my book is was very carefully fact checked, and like you yes. know, I pray that that's the worst mistake I make. Um, and I'm not happy about that one. But um, the your the I mean. I think lots of books have lots of factual errors. Like I think I, books yes. in general aren't aren't particularly well. I see it every day. And yes. the thing is, when you write about media, mm-hmm. as Jill Abramson I think found, you're writing about people who can kind of bite back and who can yes. And 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 you know, and I think that. And she spun a wonderful conspiracy theory that um, there was some collusion between that BuzzFeed was contacted, maybe even you, by somebody at Vice, and it's well, like, that's true. Want, do you want to team up on this? I that had, did happen, yes. Oh, interesting. Because what happened with me is that I read the the galley and somebody gave it to me. And the first sentence, I was like, well, that's not right. And the second sentence, I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> and I kept on reading it and I wrote a piece about it that was a thousand times worse than what I, I, I published. And I was not allowed to write it. They, Vice is the opposite of what people said, the collusion. I was prevented from publishing this piece because they said it would be look bad, that we were going after them. And then I saw this thing about they were colluding together. And I was like, well, that can't be true because they actively stopped me from publishing this piece. I still have the piece. Maybe they were trying to get BuzzFeed to take shots. Maybe, maybe they were trying to say- I don't remember you... the details, but something like that That happened. is funny because I was uh, prevented by my editor from publishing this. And we had a big, I remember where I was. I was in the- You did Apple... eventually publish it though. No. Just on Twitter. Only the, oh, on Twitter, They allowed right. me, because I said the genie's not going back into the bottle- and this stuff is going to get out there. And they said, okay, fine, you can tweet it. I tweeted it, and um, I was in a restaurant downtown. There was a bunch of news, um, like CNN was on. Yeah, the, the, the and, cruel and destructive culture of Twitter is fun when you're on that side of it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that was my only option. I had, I had I, it was like a 3,000 word piece. And, they, and he said, like, pick, I think it was 10 
I could do 10 tweets. Well, you were such a good corporate citizen. I was a corporate citizen. I was furious, but I was a corporate citizen. I didn't want to lose It did work. Turns out Twitter is actually the best place to destroy people, not not web articles. Well, the other other hilarious thing is Brian Stelter sandbagged me, and I was doing his show, and I was waiting in the lobby uh, when they were over at Time Warner Center and CNN was. And he texted me and he said, I got a surprise for you. And I said, no, fucking, please don't tell me. I know what you're going to tell me. Jill Abramson's here. And we're going to have you guys on together. And for some reason, Vice sent PR with me. And they lost it. They were like, nope, you're not going on. So I didn't go on with her. Who was went on at, uh, was, it at, my, was it my friend Mira Patney? Uh, it might have been. I, it, it doesn't matter who it was. She's our comps person. Might, she's the who best. I adore. She's the, one of my favorite people on earth. She's fantastic. I'm but, just imagining this scene. Yeah, and, and it was- She's when, very protective. When PR people are doing this, it's not their decision. They're, they're executing other people's whims. Eh. And I had to- No, this That's was definitely- correct. This was definitely not her decision. And so they were, they were like, well, you're not going to- get to be on and it's just going to be Jill Abramson. And so I negotiated uh, with the producer that I could go on after her. So I, she wow. was walking off the set and as I was walking on and I've never seen someone care so little about what had just happened. I said, look, I, I'm just, I'm a nervous person in a situation like this. I feel bad about it. So I said, you know, Hey, you know, I'm sorry about this. Like I live, this is my interest. I said, sorry about this. And she's like, Oh, it's fine. It's okay. And I was like, really? <laughs> Seriously, yeah, she talks skin. like uh, Robert F. Kennedy. She's Jr. she's a little Audrey Hep- uh, Catherine Hepburn, little Robert F. Kennedy. But yeah, she was, uh, and then went and and said all sorts of terrible things about me in various interviews afterward, trying to save her skin. But you know, that's understandable. I would do the same thing. So oh, that's all right. Yeah. Anyway, but Ben, we've taken a lot of your time here over an hour. Wow. Did we do that? Did, did we? Did we have a sandbag him on anything else? Uh, oh, no, we got only just because the New York Times he couldn't talk. And we tried to he make him talk. It. He, he Yeah, yeah. Because that was like a fucking hostage video. But Although, I, like, I mean, I remember, me honestly, I, re- that was like, I remember it fondly. I think I have many, <laughs> many worse interactions yeah, than you guys survived. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, actually, let's, let's, let's end with that because I'm, I'm curious about it. It seems like Joe Kahn is kind of like from the fifth column point of view of, of always being very um, more hostile to Dean Backhay than most people. Uh, that's in, you. In, or, that's me. <laughs> But I, I'd like to speak for the institution in this case. But um, <laughs> it seems like Joe Kahn's sort of like standing up to the people uh, inside and outside the building and saying, stop sandbagging your own colleagues. Like, guys. I mean, I think that they're trying, that they feel that they made a mistake by firing James Bennett and that they're trying to rerun it in a way. Do, you know? do, is that a feeling or is that something you get from people inside? Informed speculation. Informed speculation. Yeah. And Donald McNeil too, you think, or that's yeah, sort of I, I think yeah, I think they feel. I think they. I mean, you know, again, I don't. I don't think it's so much who is in charge as what is the moment in time. Uh huh. You know, yeah. like I don't. I think you know, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um. So and I don't. Yeah. I don't. I think. I think people. I. I people running running that newsroom in that moment was extremely difficult. My God. And this is the George Floyd moment, basically. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and. Yeah, and I think this is a less insane and hard moment to be in that job. So I, I'm not. I don't want to like. I, I don't share your your view of Dean. Um, but I do think they are like specifically trying to go back and replay that and for a different outcome to send a message. I think that's, I mean, I think the problem is that's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like that's happening a little bit more? I, I see people kind of in our universe saying, Hey, look, the, the tide is turning in some of these institutions that felt like they were losing their mind in 2020, 2021, that. I mean, like, the whole, I don't think it's like a media company issue, right? Like, I mean, you guys, yeah, was, yeah, I'm actually, there were these massive broader... racial justice in the streets and there was this huge pandemic and Donald Trump was president. It was a pretty stressful was part pretty of history. Stressful. 
I think everybody's a little more laid back right now. Yeah, and I think that's the the case where people, particularly at the times when it came to the controversies over the trans coverage, that they pushed back and were surprised that it wasn't. They weren't realizing that it was a moment in time and pushing back and getting pushback from people above them. I thought that was pretty interesting. That uh, that was like, all right, well, I think we're done with this. We, you're not going to rule. You're not going to go out there yeah. and talk to the media about us is a bad thing to do within a media. And if I can, if I can just bring this back to my book, yes, obviously, yeah. um, I do think one of the things that happened. I you know I wrote a chapter of this book about the internet about the New York Times because mm-hmm. I do think one of the things that happened here is that the Times won. Yeah, and the Times figured it out. They followed slowly but very effectively all these other Gawker, BuzzFeed, Vice places. And then they hired a lot of the people yes, from those places. Indeed. Me, Kara Swisher, Dodi Stewart from Jezebel, um, Corey Sika from Ezra Klein now. Ezra too. Klein, right? Like the whole, they kind of swallowed the whole internet. And we're all lunatics who hate each other. Yeah. And so <laughs> suddenly they had all these uh, lunatics who hated each other inside their organization who had different, in, in many of whom had come up hating the New York Times and with different values and different. And so I do think like, Part of what happened was they had sort of swallowed the internet, and the internet turns out to be full of lunatics. Yeah. And since then, I'm gone, Kara's gone, Corey's gone. We all, by the way, I think are of the same generation a little bit, like yeah. each other, disagree deeply about what journalism sure. ought to be and yeah, what a story is and how we work. Yeah. And none of us really came up as Times people. And so, like, there's probably something healthy about the Times, the organism kind of ultimately pushing out people who aren't totally in sync with their values. Yeah. yeah. Well, by the book... It is called traffic, because it's about traffic. <laughs> it's not about ca- traffic. And that is like, why I called it that. Yeah, it's about traffic. I was like, what is this book about? Halfway through, I was like, I think it's about traffic. Uh, ben Smith, um, by traffic, but also go over to Semaphore. And as I said earlier, I'm very impressed with, and I have a lot of great people over there, our former guest and pal Dave Weigel. We're talking about Max Tanney doing stuff on, on the media that's been very good recently. Um, and uh, we look forward to having you back when... Some other institution collapses, you write about it, and uh, we can ask for the secrets. Well, it's really, this was really fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Ben. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. <laughs>